Radical Personal Finance, Episode 25. On today's show, an interview with Jacob Lund Fisker, author of Early Retirement Extreme, the book and the blog. Good morning and welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast for today, July 22, 2014. It's a Tuesday today all day, and I want to thank you for being here. Today's show is one I've been looking forward to bringing you, an interview with someone I'll now call my friend, Jacob Lund Fisker. Jacob's cracked the code on how to retire, how anybody can retire in five years or fewer. If you're interested, join us. This is definitely an interview that I've been looking forward to. I've read a lot of Jacob's work over the years. In fact, uh, episode three of the of the Radical Personal Finance podcast was actually an introduction and an overview, a review of his book, Early Retirement Extreme. And if you go and listen to that show, you'll <laughs> you'll find that I give it an unqualified recommendation. Absolutely, it should be in, in my in my thought, it should be a must read for anybody who's interested in finance. And so today's show is going to be an interview with Jacob, where we're going to go into some. Uh, some philosophy. We're going to just basically have a conversation. And I really enjoyed uh, talking with him. This interview was recorded on Saturday afternoon. And we had a good time together. We had a very nice time together. And a couple of notes, however, before we get started with that, that you'll need to be aware of for the show. And I want to talk you through, you need to understand, prior to this conversation with Jacob, you need to understand a little bit about the early retirement extreme philosophy, because this interview is going to be different than many types of interviews that you would hear. A lot of times when you hear an interview on a podcast, you'll assume, you'll, you'll hear the host ask the 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 expert or the interviewee to kind of basically teach and talk a little bit about their philosophy. I really wasn't that interested in doing that kind of uh, interview. And it actually worked out really well with Jacob because in our email correspondence before the the show, <laughs> he was a little concerned. He said, I'm a little rusty when it comes to talking about early retirement. He said, I don't really think about this stuff anymore. His blog, he, he's put it on autopilot for several years now. He doesn't really post much new content. If he does, it's extremely occasional. He's got a widget that cycles posts through the front page. And his comments to me in the uh, email thread, he said, I just don't think about this stuff anymore which to me I think is actually a really important consideration, is that we all need to go, just a point I want to dwell on for a moment, we all need to go through our transition time of understanding, really understanding the in-depth nuts and bolts of something. But there's more to life than money. <laughs> you know, it, we, if it's hard for me to understand, it's hard for me to imagine still being excited about bud, doing budgets you know, 40 years from now or being excited about some aspects of personal finance. It should, just like riding a bicycle, you're not that, ex first time you ride a bicycle, you're pretty thrilled with yourself that you're able to stay on two wheels. After a while, though, you're just riding a bicycle and you're more thrilled about where you're going to go and how you're going to get there. So I think there is a very important progression that we need to understand in financial topics that over time we really should master this stuff and then not have a need to think more about it. And I think Jacob has done that. So a little bit about his story. You'll also need to understand a little bit about his philosophy and his story in order to make sense of this interview. 
So I'm going to share with you a couple of things about his philosophy and about his his story. I'm going to read just uh, the first, a little bit short part of this uh, of his his uh, about page from his website because I think this is the I think this is the um, I think this is his the best uh, update as far as to give you a uh, background on who he is. So this is from his about page, which is uh, from his website at early earlyretirementextreme.com slash about. About me. Uh, Current net worth in 2014, 64 years worth of annual expenses. My name is Jacob. My greatest claim to fame and overall impact on the world is probably this blog and the concept of ERE, Early Retirement Extreme. Before that, I used to be a nuclear astrophysicist, but in reality, I've done many other different and, to me, interesting things, and my aim is to continue this way of life for the rest of my life, never getting bored. ERE is much, much more than just retiring extremely early by, quote, sacrificing travel and expensive restaurants. It is effectively a philosophy of life. Now, you can read a summary on the wiki, a much longer version in the book, or you can try to piece it together from the blog. But the short story is that ERE is a set of values and principles that gives me the freedom and opportunity to live a life I find exciting and interesting. This quote accurately describes my philosophy of life. Quote, A master in the art of living draws no sharp distinction between his work and his play, his labor and his leisure, his mind and his body, his education and his recreation. He hardly knows which is which. He simply pursues his vision of excellence through whatever he is doing and leaves others to determine whether he is working or playing. To himself, he always appears to be doing both. François-René de Chateaubriand In contrast to Chateaubriand, most people separate their work and entertainment and refer to it as their work-life balance. They go to work doing their one specialization so that they can afford to be entertained at an expensive restaurant, a ball game, or by traveling to some tourist location and engaging in entertainment activities as a consumer. Concentrating on just one thing, like a specific career, all one's life, and engaging in other activities at the spectator level would actually bore me somewhat. I don't think humans obey the law of comparative advantage well. At least I don't. Here's another one of my favorite quotes. A human being should be able to change a diaper, plan an invasion, butcher a hog, con a ship, design a building, write a sonnet, balance accounts, build a wall, set a bone, comfort the dying, take orders, give orders, cooperate, act alone, solve equations, analyze a new problem, pitch manure, program a computer, cook a tasty meal, fight efficiently, die gallantly. Specialization is for insects. Robert A. Heinlein. That's very different from a human being should go get a job to get money to buy a house and car and go out to eat at restaurants and play tourist a couple of times, a couple of weeks each year. I engage in almost everything with the aim to get good at it. To me, it's more fun to score a goal by top shelving the puck in the local hockey league than watching the Blackhawks while eating a hot dog in the stands. That's just my preference. I'm not a good spectator. Mastering things is highly entertaining to me. I like becoming and being good at things. Sometimes this leads to people willing to pay me. Sometimes it doesn't. For the first 30 years of my life, I was lucky to have people pay me for doing what I thought was the most interesting thing in the world, researching arcane details about neutron start. At 30, I became financially independent, and therefore I no longer have to resort to to luck. Because I'm now financially independent, I don't have to care what other people are willing to pay for, but that doesn't stop me from trying to get better at what interests me, from doing the right things or helping people, or even from making money if I can. 
On the whole, I have fully internalized the ERE philosophy you read on these pages. I think this way naturally and automatically. I walk the talk. I don't think of my choices as a sacrifice any more than a toddler who has learned how to walk thinks of having thinks of having sacrificed crawling around. At this point, 2014, I have enough saved to continue this lifestyle for the next 64 years, and my passive income is twice as large as I need. And he goes on into his background and his history. So that should give you a little bit of an, of a, of an insight into kind of his philosophy. And you need to understand his philosophy to understand this interview. You'll also might want to consider listening first, if you haven't, to my review of Early Retirement Extreme, uh, the book, which is found at uh, RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash three. It's episode three. And if you re-listen to that review, you'll get an idea of the philosophy behind the book with some extensive uh, passages that I read and commented. Forgive the audio. That was back in the handheld, uh, handheld voice recorder days of the show. So I would encourage you to consider that, and that will help the, this, this interview to make a lot more sense because we don't really talk much about the practical realities of the financial planning world with Jacob. We talk more about just philosophy and have a conversation. In essence, if I were to summarize the early retirement extreme philosophy, I would say it's to see through the fallacy of the work-to-earn-to-buy a system that we currently live under. Work, work, work at one thing so that you can earn enough to buy everything else in life. See through that system. Develop skills that will allow you to end that loop where you're able to step out of that cycle and provide the needs for yourself with skills that don't require just simply the skill of being a consumer and, buy, and spending money. This skill development, skill acquisition, allows you to save a massive percentage of your income, ideally 70 to 80% or more or less, just depending on how you're able to do it. But by saving 70 to 80% or, or more of your income and by replacing the need to buy with the, with the goal for skill, then it allows one to, to, to be in the situation where you're able to retire in a very short period of time, say five to seven years, at something like that. And this is done, this is two parts to that equation. It's the high savings rate, but it's also the fact that by eliminating a lot of the need for money through skill acquisition, you're able to maintain that lifestyle going forward and in Jacob's terms, not sacrifice anything that's important to you. So that's some um, uh, that's an introduction to uh, to the interview, and I hope that is helpful for you. Two quick technical notes before I start the interview for you. Number one is uh, a couple of quick notes about my interview style. This is a lengthy interview, and I get I am if I want to watch a three minute interview with somebody, I can go watch CNBC. I, I don't have any interest in those types of interviews, and if I know the background of somebody then I really don't have much interest, me personally, in hearing their background. I'm more interested in having a conversation with them and, and just talking about things that, that, are, that are interesting between us. So with this interview, and I actually really enjoyed it more than some conversations I've had, but with this interview, I didn't have any desire to, uh, to ask him uh, you know, lots and lots about his history and to explain the whole philosophy. He, the man's written a book on it. There's no reason to go into that kind of conversation. Why, if somebody has spent weeks and months of their life pouring everything they think into a book, why would I not just do them the dignity of spending a few hours reading their book? And that's what they've struggled to, art- to articulate. What, that's where they've struggled to clearly articulate their entire philosophy. So this interview is not 
that it's not a CNBC interview. It's not a, a professional, here are my 30 minutes of questions. It's a conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. This is the type of content that I enjoy. I have to overcome a little bit of my insecurity of not doing what every, everyone else does uh, because it seems as though these types of interviews, these types of, of in-depth, lengthy conversations are not popular in the the, the press, and they're certainly not popular in the podcasting world, but this is the type of thing that I enjoy and that I the content that I like. So I'm interested in your feedback. If you like it as well, let me know. This is the type of thing that when I was out looking for financial podcasts, this is the type of thing that I was always looking for, not for a, a beautifully structured 30-minute conversation to understand you know, what someone's book is about. I wanted to hear from the person. I really get to know the person. And I really think that we've accomplished that in the interview today. The second uh, procedural note, we were on Skype, and towards, especially towards the end of the call, we had some major Skype connection issues where our call ended up disconnecting at least a half a dozen times, which was a, re- which was a real challenge. I have edited the file, so most of those disconnection times will not actually be obvious to you. However, you may find a couple of them. If you hear Jacob repeat himself on something or if it seems a little bit wonky, just assume that that was a place where I had to cut out the, the, the disconnect and then we picked up the conversation and tried to continue the theme as, as, as well as possible. And with that, here's my interview with Jacob Lund Fisker, author of the book and blog, Early Retirement Extreme. Well, Jacob, welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I'm thrilled that you're here. I've been looking forward to this conversation, so welcome. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Glad to be here, etc. <laughs> so I'd like to start and just give you kind of an opportunity. In the introduction, I've given a little bit of background, and, and if anyone wants details on, on, on your life, we're going to assume that the listeners have listened to my other show that I did reviewing your book called Early Retirement Extreme, and we're going to assume that if they're looking for details, they can find that on your website. But would you give just a quick background on kind of uh, why are, how did you become the Early Retirement Extreme guy? What, what was your story? Where did you come from, and how did you become the known as Mr. Early Retirement Extreme? Mm, yeah, so um, in... Uh, with, with respect to the blog, for instance, um, I used to have an account on MySpace uh, back, where, back before Facebook, so many, many years ago, and uh, I started writing these blog posts. I, I really had no idea what, what a blog post was, and people were, and I was writing on all kinds of different subjects. And at one point, I don't know, it probably happened pretty randomly, and I started Googling around on the, on the rest of the internet for, 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 for people who were writing, and I found that there was an actual thing called blogs, you know, in the, on the real internet. And I found a personal finance blog, which was Lazy Man and Money. Um, and that, that seemed pretty interesting to, to be able to, to write about personal finance, especially since I had somewhat of a, of a, of a background uh, in, in, in that field already at, at, at that point, namely that I was practically financially independent. And I figured that by like starting a real blog, I could um, reach an audience that was somewhat bigger than maybe my, my 50 MySpace friends. So, so that, that's, that's pretty much how it got started. I mean, other than that, I mean, at that point, it was kind of just kind of built as, as I went along. Um, there weren't very many uh, personal finance blocks back then. Um, they they kind of come in come in waves. I mean, the first ones probably started like in two thousand two, two thousand three, and then I kind of divided into like three year slots, and then maybe the next the next wave uh, 
which is where some of the biggest ones, I think, like Get Rich Slowly, et cetera, they start around 2004, 5, 6. And then I came in like in the third wave, which was 2007, 8-ish. And then you have like the fourth wave, 2010 and onwards, and the fifth wave and so on. Um, so... I kind of forget where I was going with all that. It's um, certainly it's certainly a fa- <laughs> it's certainly a fascinating world. I have a similar memories. Is that uh, I, I'm trying to remember what was the first like personal finance blog that I used to read. I, I remember yeah. I remember reading yeah Get Rich Slowly was J, you know JD Roth's project. I remember reading that uh, right from the very beginning. I don't know even know how I stumbled dollar, across yeah. it. Yeah, the simple dollar is now. I don't know even. I think Trent Trent was the author there. I think I don't know yes. if he sold that or if he's still writing it. Uh, uh, I think I think it was a similar solution to JD in that he sold it, but he's still writing. Okay. Uh, okay. Doesn't like editing. Um, uh, but but I mean, I think I guess my point was that I kind of started the blog without really having read much in terms of personal finance blogs. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've probably been reading for like two weeks or something. It's like, okay, what should I call this? Uh, well, maybe something with early retirement since I kind of had the impression of myself that I'd figured the system out and everything. And then I just kind of like, okay, early retirement extreme sounds pretty good. That's, that's kind of like during the era where they had all these extreme shows uh, on, on TV, on the radio. So, so that, that's kind of like where, where the name come from, came from. And that, that's kind of come back to, to, to bite me because like people have a lot of strong preconceptions of what retirement should be. I mean, if I had to do that all over again, I would have called it like something completely unrelated. Maybe <laughs> just like my, my, my name, or I keep saying I would call it like Mucklock or something or Penguin or whatever, just, just to sort of have some more intellectual freedom in terms of what you can say on the blog without people having any kind of prejudices again against how things should be. Right, right. Well, I'd like to, I'd like to talk about that for a minute because to me that's, a, that's an important topic is that in general, and I know, you, I'm, I know you've written on this, but in general, when people talk about retirement, they have this idea of you know, playing for 40 years. The, the stereotypical, I live in Florida, so we have plenty of golf courses. So the idea is I'm going to go golfing every day and go fishing every day, and I'm just going to play for, for 40 years. So we work until we're 65, and then we quit, and then we retire for 30 years, and we never do anything productive again. And this is the image that people have of retirement. And, you know, I just like to point out that the emperor has no clothes on and be the one to point it out. I'm sure you, 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 you'll, you'll join me in that. Nobody does that. Uh, even though everyone thinks they're supposed to do that, nobody does that. So in the past, when I've done financial planning, I'd find the majority of my clients will never be able to afford to retire because they're not really that committed to it. And the people who can afford to retire don't retire in that sense. Uh, so you know, the idea of early of retirement being, I'm just gonna, you know, I don't remember what age you were when you cons- what age were you when you considered yourself retired, you know, or financially independent or whatever word well, you want to use. Well, I was financially independent when I was 30. Uh, but I was still working in, in physics at that point and like pursuing an actual career in it. Uh, I stopped doing that when I was 33, and that's kind of like the cutoff date that I would consider right. me not really any longer pursuing any kind of like 40-year work, well, work plan. Right. And this idea that you're supposed to turn 30 
And then you're supposed to, what, golf every day for the next 65 yeah, right, years yeah. of your life? I mean, it's utterly foolish. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's like quite restrictive in terms of like, I, I coined the, 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 the term internet retirement police at one point and right. it kind of got, got, got popular. And that's, there's like a bunch of people on the internet who likes to sort of specify what you're allowed to and what you're not allowed to do. And, and I mean, one of the funny things is, um, I mean, after three years, two years of, of when I was 35, I actually went back and, 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 and got a real job again in, in a field that's already always fascinated me. And, and there was like a bunch of people who were like really upset because they, they had sort of now put me in the, in the pigeonhole me as someone who was supposed to be retired and, and, and therefore I was not really allowed to have freedom that I pretty much spent the, the past, you know, five, ten years of my life building up. I was not supposed to have that. See what I mean? Right. Um, and you know, but I mean, it's it's the the, the kind of kind of kind of thing I, I really want to talk, uh, really want to promote. It's not not so much like the traditional sense of of a life prescription where retirement is at the end, but building up the freedom to do like many different things to sort of like inter interact with with the world as as much as you sort of like sort of like maximize your human potential or something you know it kind of sounds, sounds kind of like uh hippie-ish but i mean that's, that's kind of what what i'm aiming at right well the the thing that the thing that i like to point out and it took me a while to learn to learn this because when i was a kid i would read all of these personal financial books personal finan finance books and the main thing that that I mean, I consumed hundreds of these books that all said the same thing. Look, Joshua, if you'll just start saving at an early enough age and you'll save X, X small percent of your income, somewhere between 5 to 25%, depending on which author you wanted to read, then, and you'll put that into an IRA and you'll invest it into mutual funds over the next 40 years, you'll be a millionaire. And so being interested in finance and being interested in being smart with money, I did that. I started saying, okay, well, I'm 18 years old. I'm going to open my, my Roth IRA. I'm going to buy my mutual funds, and I'm going to do it. And then I started kind of just kept on going. And what really fixed it for me was doing financial planning and actually working with hundreds of people. And what I discovered is that, in my opinion, I'll be strong just for this. You know, this, It's not stupid for everyone, but it's a dumb idea because I haven't met anybody who says, I want to retire at six. 65 and play. So therefore, this whole invest in IRAs for 40 years is a, is a pointless as a pointless discussion. Now there are a lot of ways to skin the cat. So you've promoted one way of achieve um, maximum financial independence at an early age through the route of extreme savings and and extreme frugality, using skills to replace the need for money. That's the way you've promoted. But there are many other ways. And so whether that means you know. You're going to work from, let's say, you're going to work from 18 to 25, and then be financially independent. That's fine. Or if you're just going to save enough money to take a couple of years off and travel, and we're going to get into this, work for eight years on, you know, take two years off, or work three years on, take one year off, or any variation of it. I'm not going to retire at 65. I'm going to plan to to work forever, but I'm going to work in jobs that I love. I'm going to skip the whole saving money thing. There's dozens and dozens of ways to do this. And it seems like the only time that people are going to join the Internet Retirement Police is when they're stuck in a job or, or a career that they hate. And if you're stuck in cubicle hell where you're just sitting there working, working, working for the man, then you can't. all you do is dream of retirement. But if you're working in something you're interested in, whether that's studying physics or you know, with me talking about financial planning and teaching financial planning and, or, or whether it's fishing, if you're working in something you interest, you're interested in, you really have no reason to stop. 
Uh, and so the whole the whole word retirement is so. And I think you've been a, a central central part of that that discussion. And uh, you know, just simply due to due to the name of your blog and due to some of the stuff you've written, it's a flawed concept, yeah, and it always has been. <laughs> I've written like a million. Uh, I've definitely written more than five posts on just how do we define this stuff. And I mean, it's it's really, it's it's sort of like a, I have sort of like a, a generational interpretation of it in terms of like what people object to. Uh, so I've I've kind of like divided it into in, in, into into generational objections, kind of like the fourth turning book that has like the silent generation, the boomers, etc. Where 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 people who to today. Uh, so in the 70s or 80s, the silent, silent generation um, thought of retirement as, as what you did when you were simply too old to work, like you were put out to pasture. You, you could not work anymore. And they have, they have that conception of what retirement is supposed to be. Uh, the baby boomers, uh, it's a little bit different. I mean, they're, they're kind of like the work until you're like 65, save up, save up a lot of money. And then when you're 65, you know, the party starts. Right. You're supposed to do all the things that you never had time for, you know, for the past 65 years of your life, and then you're supposed to have have fun like that. I think I think what I'm talking about is, is sort of like more the the Generation X and probably also kind of partially like the Millennial Generation interpretation of what what our retirement is, which is not is somewhat different due to like economic effects. I mean, we're kind of like lagging the boomer, so we never really had. We, we're sort of like in survivalist mode with with respect to careers i mean the idea of staying with the same company like forever for a pension plan was like pretty much gone by the time we came onto the job markets and i mean if you look at it currently for the millennials i mean they have like 25 percent unemployment so they might not even be able to have a job and, and save money so the focus has become a lot more on like how to like um survive in the system the, the way it's, it's it's currently currently is, and I mean the only way, but the only um, yeah way that retirement comes into planning is because we can sort of figure out how to like exploit the financial independence to actually liberate ourselves from from work, and we can like avoid the trappings that are sort of like have set the boomers on their paths with like McMansions and car financing, etc., and the, the very idea that you have to stay with the same company or stay at a job. Right. Until you're like old enough to like party on, and there's there's a lot of influence in it, and and yeah. you know in in a sense, you know you go after what's marketed to you, and the thing is is that and and that's where one of the things that I want to do is I want to market finance as a as a path to autonomy, as a path to self you know self direction because. If if I'm if you and here's why here's why what you've done is so powerful for many people. All you got to do is get online and jump into your forum, jump into some of the the early retirement forums, jump into uh, Money Mustaches forums. I mean, this is a powerful concept to people of the idea that I can direct my own life. But it seems to me that we go through in our modern society. It seems to me we go through years and years, decades even, of being marketed to the products that the marketer wishes to sell, and then somebody finally wakes up. And, and points you know points out that hey this product is not bringing you is not bringing you happiness, but unless you're effectively able to market something else as far as the the freedom or the lifestyle, then you know the person is trapped. And so I've seen no matter how many times people are told you should save money, you shouldn't spend money. 
if they associate saving, you know, spending money with pleasure, they're going to keep on doing it. But if you associate money with something different, freedom to do the things that you that you love to do and live the lifestyle that you that you wish to lo- to live, if you associate freedom with that, then you have the option to 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 pursue a different path. And so, uh, what I see our job is to market the idea of autonomy and independence. And there are whether yes, that means doing a job you're passionate about. You do, you read that all over the place. Find a, find a job you're passionate about or an industry that you're passionate about. Whether it's building financial independence through you know, an online business, whether it's building independence through a real estate portfolio, whether it's building independence through being an urban homesteader and growing, you know, enough food to feed yourself and feed your neighbors that you can make an income on it, uh, whether it's being a spin farmer, whether it's being, uh, I mean, there's dozens and dozens of ways to do it, but all of this is trying to gain back the autonomy that we've lost in an industrialized system, just the way I see it, not to get all philosophical, but to get all philosophical. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, in a sense, if, if it's kind of like it's 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 it's, it's like with all inter, in, interactions with like society or like investing, etc. If 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 you don't if if you, if you don't have like a personal strategy, someone else will have like a strategy for you, and you might not even be aware that they they do that, but they'll sort of influence you. If if you're not if you're not the one behind the driver's seat, you're going to be driven. Um, um, yeah. <laughs> so, did you were you always like Mister Frugal, Mister Saver, or did you come across these ideas and con- some idea and some concept that helped you to change your behavior, or were you always frugal? Um, I would say like Scrooge McDuck has probably been like my favorite Disney character for as far as I can remember. <laughs> um, but the, the the I mean I. I Grew up in in Denmark, for instance, where where like um, things like investing is not really something people do. People put put money into a pension plan, but they don't really think of the concept of you know uh, using money to make more money. And that revelation didn't come to me until I was yeah uh, very close to, to 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 financial independence actually because. The original, I mean, it kind of gets gets uh, gets into very idiosyncratic details due to the reasons that, as I explained before, that that a lot of this I was sort of like making up on the fly. I didn't really have anyone to sort of follow uh, when I started this. You know, I mean, back in, I mean, I originally I originally started getting focused on, on this back in two thousand one for entirely different reasons. And back then, you couldn't really go on on the internet and find a personal finance blog or find other people who have done anything really in in, in this regard. I mean, you can there were books out there, but you didn't. There was no easy way to know that these books existed. Um, so the 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 whole thing started uh, by me sort of discovering the idea of the mortgage, which, which is sort of the idea that you, you borrow money from the bank and then you spend 30 years paying the cost of the house pretty much times two back to the bank. And being sort of like the Scrooge McDuck, I was like, no way I was going to pay like uh, three times the amount for a house just to own the house now. So the original plan was simply to sort of save up all my money to, to, to buy the house in cash. And then much later I found out, well, instead of buying a, buying a house and keeping and, and, and staying in a career for the next 40 years, I could sort of invest this money and that would be enough to cover my lifestyle. 
Um, the second part was was sort of like on, on the lifestyle choice, sort of which is which is the using. It's not it's not so much to spend less. It's uh, what I advocate is actually using resources much more efficiently than the average consumer. Way more efficient, way more efficiently, and that that came about due to the realization, well, that that the idea of like eternal technological pro uh, progress, that everything would get fancier and fancier, was probably somewhat of a, a myth, and that might not hold, especially driven by considerations like peak oil and and so on, and and, and overpopulation. And so I sort of like engaged in sort of like a self-designed crash course and how can I survive with far less resources. So I spent spent a couple of years trying to learn how to do things myself and that was that that is that was kind of like what, what, what people refer to when they when they talk of sacrifice. You know, they're sort of like giving up the things that they're, they're giving up the idea of spending money, but they don't have anything, any skills to replace it with, so that they just do without. So so you spend like a couple of years like developing such skills, which, which, is, which is nothing nothing really more than, uh, say, you take a consumer uh, and the consumer walks into a shop and they buy like $100 worth of goods and they pay $100 and I'll have like $100 worth of goods. A, a frugal person or someone who can sort of like shop sales or whatever, they can get the same $100 worth of, uh, like a savvy shopper, let's not call it a frugal person, yet, like say a savvy shopper can get the same um, $100 value of goods for say $50. And so you 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 get you get you get the same uh, same resources for half the price. Now, if you start adding adding skills in, in in into it, then oops, my computer just kind of did something weird. Okay. Um then then you might be able to get like $100 worth of goods for $25. Which means you are now four times as efficient as someone who sort of just blindly shopping for everything. So it's this kind of like skill set that you develop in order to 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 uh, to to become more efficient, and and that's 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 really the things thing I I I tried to promote, and it was that combination of of having like a, a, a sort of like a four hundred percent efficiency increase and how effectively I spend my money to get pretty much the same middle class lifestyle as everybody else for like a quarter of the price and the, I, uh, the fact that I saved so much money uh, saved almost all money that I wasn't was no longer like wasting on, on, on you know like consumer stuff or the easy solution let's put it that way the things that people do to you uh, com uh, so combining these two kind of led to the financial independence as soon as I found out, hey, you could actually take this money and invest it. Yeah. And and I think that that idea of just skill is one of the core ideas that I don't often see talked about in finance, in the finance world. And I think one of the misconceptions that, that may, many people have is this idea that you only need to do that when when you're when you don't have any money. Right. I've never found anybody who has any money. I've never worked with anybody who has any money who who doesn't have that skill. And I can point to academic research on it. For example, I think the best academic research, the formalized, defensible, um, non-anecdotal evidence would be Tom Stanley's books, his studies of millionaires. He wrote one. What was his most recent one? Uh, it was called... Uh, 
I don't remember. It was his most recent book that he wrote, and, and it was oh, it's called "Stop Acting Rich." That's what it was. And yeah. and the entire point of it was that if you actually look at people who are wealthy, you will find that they are they are less concerned with uh, they're less concerned. They're, they're mainly concerned with the maximum utilization of the resources that they, that they have. Yeah. And so he defined, and I, and I don't think many people understand what it is like to be extremely affluent. And he defined, he says there is a segment of society, and I'm kind of just loosely paraphrasing. It's been a couple of years since I read his book. But he defined a segment of society that he calls the glittering rich. And he says there is the glittering rich. And so if you have massive amounts of money, it is very, very easy for you to simply spend a high amount of money and it to never affect your net worth. And the example that I can think of from a show I recorded in the past is I did a calculation one time on uh, Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft. And or he was an early, I don't know if he's a co-founder, he was, he was engaged with, involved with Microsoft. And I remember mm-hmm. a decade or so ago, he had built a yacht, uh, he had built a yacht that was called... Um, I think called Octopus or something like that. And I remember uh-huh. reading articles that it was this massive mega yacht. And it was, incre- it was the biggest one in the world at the time. And so I went and I looked up how much it costs, how much it cost him. And I found out that it cost him $200 million to buy and $20 million per year to run. And, the, and, uh, and, and so you say, well, that sounds like a lot of money. But then I went and calculated his net worth based upon just some celebrity net worth site I found. I assumed he spent five percent. I assumed he had a five percent annual income off of his net worth. Assume he has no skill with investing. He has nobody who is at all proficient to be able to do better, and he's just taking a five percent uh, across the board um, flow off of his net worth. And for Paul Allen to go and buy with his net worth, for him to go and buy a two hundred million dollar yacht and spend twenty million dollars a year maintaining it is exactly the same as somebody with a net worth of $2 million with a 5% dividend flow off of their net worth of $200,000 a year, buying a $20,000 boat and spending $2,000 a year maintaining it. And so when you put it in perspective, you say, well, <laughs> I wouldn't tell someone that had $2 million bucks if they, if, they, if they wanted to buy a $20,000 boat that they couldn't afford it. Well, that's the same thing for Paul Allen to go and buy a $200 million yacht. It's a meaningless drop in the bucket. But then you have much of society is trying to emulate the glittering rich without being actually affluent. But it's the major skill. You have to have that major skill of being able to utilize the resources efficiently. You can't escape the math. So while working on the income side, you've got to build the skill and replace the spending money with skill so that you have capital to invest if you ever hope to achieve financial freedom. And that's, that's, that, that's probably one of the, I would say, the most challenging thing to convey to people because they have this like one-dimensional uh, perspective on, on standard of living and what they can do with their life, namely like how much money are they spending and how much money are they making. I mean, before this podcast, I was like, yesterday, I spent all yesterday thinking of like trying to come up with an analogy that people can 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 understand. But it's it's kind of like you know you can't you can't really. It's like this stupid proverb: you can like lead a horse to the water, but can't make it think. You know, I mean, you can't you can't. It's it's very hard to explain something to people if they never had the thought before because. It just doesn't enter their mind. But the, I mean, the best thing I came up with was like uh, a mixed martial arts analogy. And before that, you know, you had you had pretty much so, so most people are kind of like a, a one-armed boxer in the sense they know how to throw a punch, 
and which is sort of like handing over their wallet or like spending money to to get get stuff. And some someone like Paul Allen might be like a two hundred and seventy pound superhuman, you know, power thrower. And someone who lives in poverty would would be, you know, like a scrawny, a scrawny eighty pound guy, you know. And it's it's pretty clear comparing these two, you know, who's gonna win this fight. And so you have like people thinking that if if they think one dimensional in in terms of fighting, it's 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 um, you you just you 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 line up say the fighters based on weight class only and exactly how much money they can spend and when when someone says well i weigh like uh say 180 pounds well you must be able to fight this well you know you can you can beat the 150 pound guy but can't beat the 200 pound guy but i mean what what uh, and, and that's kind of like um, okay, so I'm trying not to say like everything at once. I have a bunch of notes, like a ton, ton of things I want to say. <laughs> Go ahead. But, uh, Here's your forum. And, and Here's your forum. It's kind of, that's, that's very much, that's very much a problem of conveying this whole new way of thinking because there's so many layers to it. Um, but you know, when, when people start start like training, for instance, martial arts, they typically start with with a simple technique, and they learn like they learn how to punch and they, they learn one punch and they maybe learn maybe they learn two punches and then they learn, learn a couple of blocks and then they learn a kick and and that's sort of like their repertoire you know and that's that's kind of like when they're in like the tips and techniques uh phase of their sort of like uh, maturity and mental develop skill development and at one point they'll sort of like learn all of them you know they'll learn all the tips and they'll learn all the techniques but what what then that's typically when you hand over the the black belt because that's that sort of like signifies that okay this this guy now knows every every tip in the book but uh, anyone who's ever reached that level knows that that's that's kind of like that that and it's the same thing with the phd you know it's kind of like that just signals that that true learning is about to begin it just means you've mastered all the basics and so the next step is is sort of like to reduce these tips and trick techniques back to like like a set of principles like, you can learn a thousand tips, but they probably only have like uh, a handful of principles in, in, in common, you know, how to use your arms and how to use your legs and how to use your body sort of like to hurt your opponent or live efficiently and so on. Um, so once once you kind of like get to that level, I mean, that, and that's kind of like what mixed martial arts uh, demonstrated because suddenly you had like fighters who were not le- not just trained like in, in like how to punch hard I mean some of them would would kick some of them would do takedowns and some of them would use like, like their whole body to fight with and and back when the whole thing started for instance you had these like uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu guys you know weighing uh, like 170 pounds and this guy is, is, is defeating you know like this uh, 250 pound boxer with no problem at all because he's just using many he's using his entire body he's not just punching anymore and I mean that's 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 sort of that's not just a different uh, it's it's not it's it's no longer like a difference in in degree when when you have have this transition it's a, it's a difference in in kind it's a it's a whole new fighting style, uh, but um, the, the the problem with conveying these ideas to sort of the philosophical ideas behind like ERE uh, is is that it's it's not immediately obvious that 
the considerations that go into spending money like four times more efficiently than, than the, the, the average than the average consumer. But it's sort of like the same the same idea. But the problem is that when you try to like explain that to people, is that they'll still only they'll look at my um, say they'll look at my seven k a year spending, which is now getting down to five thousand dollars a year. That was going to be one of my questions. Do you still track your spending, and what's the number? Yeah, it's about five k now <laughs> since we bought the house, so we're no longer paying rent. So real estate taxes and insurance is somewhat less than rent is in this area. And so that's <laughs> five five k because you're married, so five k just yeah, to be yeah, clear would would count for 10, half of your household yeah, expenses. Yeah, ten k for both of us. Okay, that's great. Keep going. Keep uh, keep yeah. going. Okay. Um. So so um. You were you were giving the example of uh, people look from the outside and they see as uh, they can't understand they can't quite understand when they say yeah I'm I mean they're still, they're, they're still just looking at like my punching strength right. They're not looking at the fact that I'm also using like my other arm. I'm using my legs. I'm using like my my entire body to fight, um, or like I'm not just like spending. I'm not just pulling out my my credit card whenever I want something. You know, like I'm looking at where else can I get how 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 else, are there any other ways I can like uh, solve this problem other than paying for for like some technology or calling someone and having them come over and fix it or you know um and and so like consumers and and essentially consumer society which is probably like 90 percent of the population has or maybe 95 i mean most most people have this perception that that all that's like human all human potential is like strictly limited by by how much money you can spend and i mean i think that leads to some a somewhat like limited existence i mean i know i know people who earn like tons of money like amazing amounts of money, and in general, many of them still kind of think in uh, in the same terms that that I hear when that whenever someone objects to ERE and 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 my lifestyle is like, well, since you're not spending money, you can't do like the three things, which is like strictly only three things that everybody likes to do. Which is number one, going to restaurants. Um, number two is. Um, uh, Going to sports events and watching sports, you know, like front, it's, and then it's kind of like a question question whether it's like the the front seats or whether it's the bleachers. And the third thing is that you that you can't afford tourism, like you can't afford you know your annual two week vacation. That's that's kind of like the three things that come up again and again as sort of like the the pinnacle of like human entertainment and achievement. And I'm just like. But there's so much more you can do, you know. I mean, it's way, way more fun to like play baseball and to watch baseball, say, and 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 so on. I mean, and there's a uh, there's a law in ecology called like Liebig's law of the minimum, which which kind of has to do with uh, feeding plants. And um, so, 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 what it says is that your plant growth is sort of restricted by the the minimum. I mean, plants need many things to to grow. They need sunlight. They need water. They need potassium. They need nitrogen, and so on. And 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 the growth is limited by the the minimum ingredient that is that is supplied. It's like like once you don't supply any more nitrogen, if you, if you if you're like nitrogen deficient. It, you can't you can't substitute you can't like just add more water and expect the plant to grow and I think human I mean I think life as a 
human being is, is sort of similar in that there are sort of like significant restrictions on how much you can do. Like money does not substitute for any for, for everything. And that's that's sort of like this economic idea that's yet very pervasive in, in society, you know, the law of substitution. It doesn't really it doesn't really hold in reality, you know. I mean you 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 might have a guy who's worth like a hundred million dollars, you know, but there's like no matter there's there's no amount of money this guy can pay if he can't like run say ten kilometers, he can't like he can't write a check big enough to make him run ten kilometers. He has to put in like the physical effort and the training and so on in order to have that experience. But it, it it's just that that most people especially consumers are completely blind to all the experiences they can have because they're sort of like minimum limited because they only look at at what their money can buy and i think i think that's kind of tragic but yeah and it seems i I think there's many reasons for it but one of the reasons i mean i'm a i'm a downright complete total optimist about just about everything in life but I like to call myself a rational optimist, and that was largely driven by reading uh, Matt Ridley's book by the same title, uh, where he goes to, it's, it's called The Rational Optimist, would suggest it to people, uh, really enjoyed kind of his going through and charting the history of basically the world. And, and, but my point is that uh, one of the biggest things that I see is, is that it's only exposure that allows people to, to, we're usually limited by our own experience. So I've, I've come from a certain experience, you've come from a certain experience, and we're generally limited by our, by our experience. If I grew up speaking English and I never knew anyone who, who spoke another language, I prob- and I never met anybody who, uh, I never knew an English speaker who had learned another language, and I never met anybody who spoke another language, I would have no concept of languages if I, didn't, if I weren't exposed to them. But if I were exposed to somebody who spoke other languages and I saw a value in it, I would, I would realize, wow, I could do that. I could do that too. And so with every aspect of life, I think you see this. And so whether it's I, I could live on a smaller amount of money, I could follow my dreams and build a business, I could travel. I remember um, when I first started to travel outside of the country, and I'd meet these, these people from usually from Europe, either German tourists or Australian tourists, and in the backpacking hostels and, and various places. And you find out that here's somebody who really doesn't have much money, but they've been on the road for 18 months traveling through South America. And you say, oh, so the American concept of a two-week vacation where I go and spend all my money, <laughs> spend thousands of dollars over two weeks, and I can't afford to travel ever again, there is another way to do it. Now, I wouldn't tell somebody you have to do it the other, this other way. But one thing I, I, I'm so excited about the Internet is you don't have to wait until you meet you don't have to wait until you meet someone in a hostel in, in, in San Jose, Costa Rica. Uh, rather, you'll stumble across them online while you're, you're goofing off at work doing a job you don't like. And then you say, whoa, look at this guy here. He's traveling on $10,000 a year traveling the world. I've got $30,000. I could go travel for a couple of years. And then that, that spreads and that spreads and that spreads. And I see it. And, that, that, and that's something that's, that's become like a lot easier over the past oh, yeah. 10, 15 years. And, and it's so, I mean, just to get to the concept of efficiency, 
I, I mean, I'm with you. I, I, I don't. I'm sure that I don't live the same lifestyle that 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 you live. I'm not nearly as efficient as you are. Uh, uh, we probably live similar lifestyles. It just might be ah, there we go. less than you do. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true. In fact, I've got a couple of personal questions that that yeah. uh, that I'm going to ask you about uh, during during the course of this conversation. Yes, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you that my neighbors they can't tell, you yeah. know, and visitors they can't tell. You know, it's just it's kind of like when they ask, you know, I'll tell them, you know, like I don't believe that, you know, but yeah. Yeah, the, 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 one of the ones that I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll get to those. I'll get to the questions in a second because there's a couple of budget categories that just I cannot figure out how to fix, and I'll, I'll get to them in a second. And I've, I've working on them, working on them, working on them. I just can't. I can't figure out the solution for me. But to, the the thing is, is that there's so many areas of inefficiency. You talked about for you, the turning point was the mortgage, and I, I think if everybody, I, I'm appalled at how slow the process of progress is with construction methods and how expensive construction methods are. But yet, in general, I've rarely found a financial planning client who has said, Joshua, I want to buy a house and I'm not willing to take out a mortgage for it. But when I go and read, have you ever read the book called Mortgage Free by Rob Roy? Uh, no, but I have heard a lot about it. Okay, so I, re- I found that book years ago yeah. and uh, I just it blew my mind when I started reading his plan for how to have a mortgage-free life by building your own house, and then that got me going on uh, that got me going on ecological design, on housing design, and you go out and you start you start researching, and you find out there are dozens and dozens and dozens of incredible building methods, building design methods that are in a climate, they have to be climate appropriate, and that's how housing should be, that are climate appropriate. And you can build a beautiful house that is incredibly energy efficient, incredibly comfortable, incredibly beautiful, and it only costs you a relatively much smaller amount of money, whether it's ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars instead of a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars. But but ironically, it's probably hard to get approved by the local zoning board. You can't do it. You cannot do it. And so, like, th- if you want to know what what makes <laughs> my wife, if you want to get my wife going, she, this is the uh, this is the. Uh, this is the, the topic. If you want to get me going, then this is the topic that you can get me going on. You cannot do it. Is that I live in Palm Beach County, Florida, and so we have substantial zoning regulations, code regulations, hurricane regulations. And there's all this talk among everyone, well, we want to be green and we want to be, you know, promote eco-efficiency. And so the greatest idea is to build a passive house. Uh, that's a, a passive house in the German sense is a, is a brand name or a, a lead platinum house. And you look at it and say... Yeah, but consider the cost of this thing and consider what you could do with much simpler. Could we get 80% of the way there with completely uh, non-human, non-human messed with materials without all of this massive expensive you know, infrastructure required to put all these materials into your lead platinum house? Could we get 80% of the way there building with uh, lime and <laughs> lime and, and wattle right. and daub or whatever the version is? But, a, but the government... The government is what gets in the way. And I think you see this in industry and in innovation. Why is that? Why would we have such incredible technology? Well, because the tech industry was, uh, was very unregulated. So people, entrepreneurs can just simply design and go and do it. Well, why is it that we're still driving cars that get an average of under 30 miles per gallon? It's absurd. But yet what's the most regulated, uh, regulated industry? It's the vehicle industry. Yeah, so- I, rem- I remember seeing a car built from f- uh, in the seventies. It was sort of like one of those like gas gasling uh, steel monsters, you know, two ton steel monsters from that area. Era, but that had been modified to uh, run at uh, three hundred miles per gallon. 
yeah. by like taking taking out the the weight and uh, replacing the transmission with a chain that ran down the cabin, etc. And it's kind of funny thinking that you could you could you could make vehicles like that, but yet people are focused now today on like hybrids, you know, right. which requires like a massive technological infrastructure is probably one of the least green cars you can imagine i hope i hope toyota doesn't sue me now but i mean <laughs> and then people are kind of like focus focusing on on that by you know like spending that much money getting like 10 miles per gallon more than just buying like an old car that already exists you know it might get fewer you know miles per gallon but you know what what you don't waste in uh, you, what we what you waste more in in gas by driving like the old beater. You definitely save by not pay by by not overpaying. You know by twenty thousand dollars. But it's it's just it's just it's sort of like it's it's not in the in the mentality I would say of of, of this society. I mean it's 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 again it's kind of like if you if you don't have a personal strategy, someone will use their strategy against you. And like right now, the strategy being used against people is 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 is, is built on the fact that. There has to be like a technology. Solutions always have to be technolo- technological. You know, you can't have a solution that would require people to stop thinking and changing their habits. Right. right? It's kind of like you know, like the medical industry. You could fix like I think it's like sixty or seventy percent of all diseases are lifestyle diseases, which could be avoided. Right. If if people would like just live more healthy and you know take care of themselves. But but you can you cannot you cannot have like a lifestyle solution. You have to have a technological solution, and in many cases, you also have to have like a financial solution. You, you can't pay cash; it has to be financed uh, in, in 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 the sense that almost like the, the drive is really towards financialization or turning you know like people into recurring cash streams, right? You can, you can kind of see that with cell phones. You know, you give you give the cell phone away in exchange for like a binding contract. Right, right. So now, now you you, you you sort of secured that it's exactly the same thing with the markets. You give a house in, in, in return for like people essentially becoming indentured indentured to you. So it's it's just uh, that's that's just how it works. I mean, I saw I saw like an, a funny question, and I think it was on MMM's forum, like whether I believe in aliens and whether <laughs> I believe believe that aliens hack the technology to enslave humanity or something. Right. Uh so in, in that regard, yeah, there's certainly no physical laws preventing aliens from exist, existing. But the second question is much easier. It's even, it's very easy to enslave humanity. All, all you got to do is to like give them a credit card uh, and, and a mortgage application and then give them a job title, you know, like as, as, a, as an associate and who cares incorporated and, and a day job. And you, you're pretty much there, right? You know? Problem solved. You're there. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad you brought that question up because I had. I made a list of those questions. That was the one that I struck, and I said, "How on earth am I supposed to ask <laughs> Jacob if aliens exist?" I, I want to ask all these questions for the for the uh, for the forum members, but how on earth am I supposed to do that? Well, the, and the the thing that I see, and I think that your book points this out. Which, by the way, I would like to give you a compliment uh, specifically on. The strategies that you use in your book, and and here's what I mean. In the world of money, when you start researching the world of money and you start reading books, you have to be very careful to find a strategy that's going to work for everybody because it seems like many of the strategies and ideas that are out there are structured much more like a Ponzi scheme than they are anything else. So, for example, uh, if, I, you know, if I'm talking about financial planning and I'm saying – 
pursue financial independence and look, you you know, you should go out and start a podcast just like me and you should make lots of money or I'm a financial blogger or, or a book and you said say you should go and tell people how to make money. You get this this Ponzi scheme and everyone's getting rich off of telling other people how to get rich. And it's making money blogging about how to make money by yeah. blogging about it. And it's absurd. <laughs> and and the thing is about your strategy is that it does that none of that comes into that. In fact, you know, I have I I'm hoping that over time over the coming years, depend, I don't know how long it'll take. It may take a few years, but over the coming years, I would love to do this uh, financial planning podcast as as a primary source of income to, yeah. to support my lifestyle. That would be my lifestyle dream that I think I would do if I were financially independent. But if that were to occur in the future, I would always I will always have this problem is that I was not financially independent, you know, before starting the podcast. And now I've kind of done this selling a dream, so to speak. So my hope is not to sell a dream. My hope is to teach like rules and laws. And I think that's an ethical way to approach it. But your strategy is completely uh, your strategies that you outline in your book are completely industry agnostic, person agnostic. And they, they, they scale. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And here, here's what I see. In, in one sense, I have almost no hope for general society. And this is just from a personal, personal perspective. Uh, and I, I'm, not, I'm not a pessimist about that, but I don't have any plan that will make any kind of change for general society. It seems that as years go by, it seems that it, as a society, we surrender more and more of our freedoms. We don't stand up for, for the things, for our ability to run our lives. And yet... So we've never lived in one way. We've never lived in the U.S. context in a in a in a society of greater tyranny. Uh, you know, if you were to compare the things that uh, I was reading an article the other day that was talking about the number of home invasions um, uh, accomplished by police SWAT teams versus the number versus the. Uh, invasion of British soldiers in this country back in the American Revolution. If you were to wake up and tell somebody in the, you know, in 1776, look at, here's the, I think it was 20,000 home invasions a year by SWAT teams, and we just let it go, we just let it go without changing anything, they would be shocked. So I don't, so tyranny grows day by day, and yet it has never been easier in the history of mankind for an individual's to practice personal freedom for individuals oh, yeah. to just simply say, I'm going to step outside the cave to borrow the allegory of the cave from Plato's Republic. I'm going to step outside the cave. I'm going to see it for what it is. I'm going to pursue a different path. It's never, ever in the history of mankind been easier. There has never been fewer consequences. It has never been you know, harder to fail. There's never been greater tools. There's never been ability to live with greater comfort than it is right now. So it's all about you know, adopting that individual perspective and not looking at society for solutions, but rather saying, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to make a difference in my life, and I'm going to pursue the plan that's appropriate for me. And then if other people want to follow, that's awesome, but I'm not going to try to force anyone else. I I would say maybe that's the third ingredient that kind of caused me to to start the ERE block. Um, I would say uh, I'm I'm kind of like a uh, rational rationalist or rational pessimist and that I, I usually always look at like the worst cases of what can happen and then I try to avoid them and that that usually leads to pretty good cases but it's just a matter of perspective but like back the the, the reason you know I, I talked in the very beginning of this podcast about my discovery of like the myth of like the the west the myth in civilization western civilization of like eternal progress might not be true right and that 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 is sort of like the revelation I that was maybe like the progenitor 
to what started me off the path of you know like the standard career uh, job markets you know and so on and so I spent several years um, talking you know to about peak oil and you know overpopulation was like the two primary problems at, at, at the turn of, of the millennium and what what I found was it, it the focus was always on like what we should do as a society, you know. What was that? That's mine. I'm sorry. I okay. <laughs> turn this off. There we go. Keep going. Okay. So, so the focus was all, all always on on what we should do as a society. You know, if only we can like change these things, then we can you know do this and that. And after a few years, I mean, it kind of become, became obvious to me that well people here you know in this news group and, and so on we're basically preaching to the choir we're pre- we're talking to ourselves you know and it it's never gonna happen it's it's not gonna well let's put it another way it's if, if you have if you have like a minor, minority point of view that maybe the majority is wrong in this kind of progress that fueled economy it, it's not gonna come around through like rational argument that you suddenly magically manage to convince you know the other ninety percent of the population to like you know radically change you know national policies or even global policies and something. It's 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 so 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 the, my focus changed from like what we can do to what like you can do, or what I can do, and and then I started sort of like building up what kind of lifestyle is compatible with the future I'm seeing and. If if a sufficient amount of individuals you know adopt this lifestyle, can we maybe have like an emergent change to what what we would like to see? So in, in, instead of like talking about what we can do, it's kind of like, well, here's what you can do, and if you do that, and if enough people like you do that, then this group of yous become the new we, and then that we will pretty much have changed it already. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, I, and, <laughs> and I and that's exactly the the I agree with you. Yeah. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about some of those challenges. Whether again, and peak oil is probably the 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 uh, one of the more what it's a major one. Uh, I have a soft spot it's also for like. It, um, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, you have. Uh, well, one thing I consider that I always consider important, like. So, so first strategy is like avoiding bad things, but also like uh, setting myself up so I can take advantage of it if good things happen, right? Right. So, so suppose you know like fusion get it gets invented in in ten years, or like the like the shale boom is actually not a bubble, and and things will just be hunky dory for the next like hundred years. I also need like the strategy to actually succeed in that scenario. So you're sort of doing this like contingency planning. Well, will it will it work if like the world goes this way? Will it work if the world goes that way, and so on? So you need like a, a strategy that works in all scenarios, and then pretty much no matter what happens, you'll be all right. So, so like with 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 ERE having like a substantial like money foundation, if if say the economy turns turns around and doesn't turn into like Japan for the next like thirty years, but but kind of like replicates what the U.S. has done over the past fifty years, you know, like with ma- massive massive growth. Then this strategy, you know, with the, the, the say like the financial hedge, will will do very well. You know, you can just if if you ever change your mind and you don't want to like use any skills anymore, you can just like ignore that and go back to you know like being like the two hundred and fifty pound boxer, you know, punching with his one arm and buying everything, right? Um, 
if the economy kind of bombs, you know, and not just the economy, but sort of like really structurally let things go down the drain, well, then you can rely on your skills to carry you and you can probably like set yourself up as like a force in the neighborhood in, in the sense that you'll, you'll be like the go-to guy who knows how to like, uh, you know, like feed yourself from the garden. You're the one who knows how to like fix the car when it breaks or turn the car into a bicycle once there's no more gasoline and so on and so forth. Uh, so, so, so it has to be sort of like a, a multi-pronged and, and, and hipster approach to it. And, and one of the things that sort of concerned me a little bit is that, uh, and, and that might just come with experience, but, but people who come like from like the consumer world are still like mainly focused on the let's, let's just, you know, save enough money. I don't, I don't really care to learn any skills or anything whatsoever. I just want to save a bunch of money. And then once I have enough money to like pay for the things I pay for, then I'm good. Right. Uh, I, 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 I think I think that's a that's a risky strategy. And so I actually have a soft spot. I have a personal soft spot and enjoyment of dystopian fiction. And I really enjoy reading uh, apocalyptic dyspo- dystopian fiction about the world, the world falling apart and trying to figure out because I think it's a really interesting thought experiment. And you've just made a point. You stole it right off of my notes of things that I wanted to talk about. In your book, you talk about, here would be one of the biggest, um, I would say, fears uh, that people have about retiring. And so one of the fears that people have about retiring is, well, what do I do if I run out of money? And so the, the concern is that, well, if I run out of money, then how am I going to be in a position where I'm able to, 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 to do anything again? If, I've, if, I'm, if I'm old and I've retired and I've dropped out of the, if I've dropped out of the, you know, I've, I've surrendered my career, so I'm no longer as employable as I once was, then, uh, then what am I going to do? So people are oftentimes looking for, finan- for a financial solution. So they're saying, hey, Mr. P- Mr. Financial Planner, can you absolutely guarantee me that this, you know, this, retirement uh, distribution plan, including an investment plan, is going to work no matter what? Well, the answer is no. I can't. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, there certainly could be a nuclear warhead fall on the, con- uh, fall on the United States. We could go into a, a Japan-style uh, malaise. Like, I don't have... Now, I don't think that's going to happen. But then again, I'm a human being, and I could be completely wrong about what I think. But the backup plan is not usually a financial plan. So if you get into the peak oil world or you get into the, the financial disaster world or you get into people convinced that the dollar is going to blow up or you get into the, you know, the, the, these solutions, usually people are looking for a financial solution. I don't know of a financial solution that works. The solution is skills. Because the type of person, and here's the missing link that I see, the type of person who develops skills he or she has to develop human capital. So you develop your human capital, and then the market rewards you for that human capital with financial capital, something we call money, which is an exchange of, which is an accounting for value. It's, a, it's basically a system of accounting among people. So those with higher skills in a free market, those with higher skills, earn and acquire higher money. Now, you can become a capitalist and turn around and you need to deploy that capital. But if, you've, if you have built skills... If the entire money system disappeared or if the entire economy disappeared or if oil overnight went up to you know, $20 a gallon, would there be substantial repercussions? Absolutely there would. But the people who will come through that are the people with skills. 
And so the, the solution to what do I do if the world goes crazy is not a financial solution. It's not stacks and stacks of gold coins. It's building out skills. And whether they're very mechanical skills, hands-on skills, like you said, the ability to grow food, or whether they're skills of leadership, inspiration, right. salesmanship, organizational management, these are all still applicable in any kind of human settlement. So and I, think, I think that's kind of like where it comes back to this whole like retirement argument because like the point really is not to retire and sort of like become useless to people it's it's really to become more useful right and and you kind of set up the, i mean i would say in, in in many ways which goes back to like the aliens enslaving humanity kind of i kind of like this line <laughs> <laughs> uh is that in 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 many ways you know if, if if you go to college you know as in order to just sort of like get your degree so you can beca- become employable in, in a lot of ways, the world is sort of like set up to try to make you more useless. Aside from the very thing that you use to make money, like the more useless you 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 become at every, practically everything else, the more the more the more controlled, or the less choice you have, and the more predictable you are. And so, one of one of the points of Yuri is sort of like to get out of get out of that funk and and to sort of liberate liberate people so and, and one of i mean the main way of doing that is is sort of to give first like the financial wherewithals and ironically that's shown by the very job that tries to keep people pegged on, on in, in 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 their cubicle but but once they're financially liberated i mean it, it's kind of like that 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 that's just, that's just okay that just means you have the black belt or the phd or whatever that just means that your your, your learning is, is starting now now you're sort of supposed to i mean Okay, I mean, if you want to like go go on on a, on a on a lifelong vacation forever after, you know, and do, you know, I wouldn't say do nothing, but you know, not do anything that anyone could possibly pay you for. And also, I don't want to like emphasize the like the requirement that people will pay you for what you do. I mean, there's like plenty of like important things that people can do that are not like governed by like money transactions. You know, like like taking taking care of relatives or something is is, is like not remunerated. Um, but but the the main point I want to emphasize is like the financial independence is is an easy way for people who like tends to earn a lot of money um, to get out of it. Uh, it's not the only way. I mean, you could also become wildly skilled and that be able to pick up like jobs whenever you need the money. Uh, something which I think is actually a superior solution. I, I have much more respect for someone who can like go out and find find a job tomorrow if they need money, and they can do it like twenty different ways than than someone who worked as you know like a career specialist for like five years, which is what I did, and then just amass the the, the financial capital. Um, so yeah, I mean I'm kind of going in, circle, in circles here, but like the the, the the main point is to continue creating creating value once you kind of like re- retire from your career so here's and, and then, yeah here here would be my question for you so you retired and then you went back and you are now employed you're not self-employed you're not uh you're not an entrepreneur you are employed in some capacity how has that transition back to employment affected affected your sense of freedom um it is, it is certainly like restricted it a bit in, in terms of like the time, you know, it's kind of, it's nine to five, which, which, which means that, that takes a lot, away a lot of, uh, a lot of time. Uh, it's, it's also somewhat restricted in terms of it being like a salary position. 
um, in in it's 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 not so much like a money question. It's more like if I if 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 I want to keep doing what I do, I have to sort of like come back the next day and so on and so forth. So that, so there there are like other other bounds on you if 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 you want to do that in 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 a, in a salary position. So 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 these are somewhat restrictive. Uh, so that's that's kind of like the price you pay. And I, I mean I can I can I can absolutely see how people say, well, I don't have time to. Yeah. Uh, so the call dropped for a moment, and now we're back. And so, Jacob, the question I have, I have you were talking just for a moment when the call dropped about uh, employment and kind of the challenges of employment. Uh, but do you feel – here would be my question. Now yeah. that you are financially independent by your, by your statement of, hey, I'm even spending less money than I, than I was when I lived in the, out in California, and assuming that you haven't destroyed your investments with something stupid, we'll just make that assumption. <laughs> I won't ask you to comment. <laughs> but mm-hmm. conti- but no, how- my, my, my withdrawal rate now is like 1.1%. That's so fantastic. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so the question would be, do you find it different to work being employed in what sounds like a nine to five job without complete autonomy. Do you find it different being employed knowing that you could quit at any time if you wanted to versus when you were a young man before you were financially independent and being employed in a, in a mainstream job at that point in time? Is it a different experience? Well, in, in, in those terms, the ability to like quit at any time uh, is, certainly makes for a much different different feeling like like it's you're not really putting up with as much bullshit as you might be willing to if you had to stay there and i also think of it much more as a uh, a sort of like a hobby sort of like a mutual exchange of value if you want you know like uh, they let me work there and i work for them and we're both happy about that rather than a uh, you work here because you sort of forced to and therefore i can tell you to do the stuff you don't really want to do but you have no choice because you need the money I'm paying you, so that's that's a huge change in sort of like the working relationship. But I mean, a lot of I mean, I work I work in a in a field that probably most people know that it has something to do in, with investment, where a lot of people actually are also financially independent. So like the whole, the entire culture is, is kind of like predicated on that kind of attitude. Yeah, which which you don't really find in many other fields of of, of work. No, you don't. Um, uh, yeah, one of one of one of the things I also get a lot from the forums is that once people reach the the crossover point, the point where they get financially independent, it's a lot of them actually. I mean, it's kind of like you have you have this probably a much above average drive compared compared to other people to like succeed and you to to become more competent and so on, and it's it's kind of like I mean. A lot of people have, and, and me too, had a hard time letting letting go of that. So, so we we like big projects and 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 completing those and like being engaged and so on. And so, so what what many people have have done is uh, they they reach a crossover point. They don't really like some aspects of their jobs um, or their day job. So they go into the boss and say, "Well, you know, I I like to either quit or I like these changes. You know, like for instance, I would prefer to like." Are you still on? Yep. You're still okay. Here. Yeah. I, um. I, I would. I would prefer to like uh, retain my access to like you know this ten million dollar lab you have because I like tinkering you know with the machines, but I would rather not go to any more sales meetings, and I'd like to cut that out because I don't like sales. I'm an engineer, for instance, 
and they actually negotiate some some tend to negotiate some very good terms because they can now whereas in the past the the like the manager would just say well you know I'll just promote this this other guy but you still have to do this you know so that's 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 a much more common strategy than the I reached the crossover point and now I'm gonna gonna quit my job and do nothing right. or, yeah and I, and I think I see I see that that's one of the 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 observations that I've had is that you don't have to be financially independent to feel financially independent is that there are many strategies and and so I define financial independence the my current my personal definition is the ability to to live off of the production of your investment portfolio without needing to and maintain your lifestyle without needing to add to that portfolio on an ongoing basis because I would say yeah. the only real passive investment you know the only real passive income that exists would be investment income where other people are running other companies that you're living yeah. off of their labor it's it's definitely it's definitely a matter of degree I and mean, yes. that's a term called fu money i yes. got in trouble for like uh, saying that explicitly at one point kind <laughs> <laughs> of podcast i won't do it here but i presume everybody knows what it right. means right um and and we we tend to sort of like especially like ERE and MMM we we kind of look at it as as like the true true like one hundred percent financial independent like never need to work again, but in the original like definition of the work which is like like decades old apparently it's there's been some like attempts to like trace it back but I don't think I'm not aware that anyone has actually found the like the original person who said it but it could it, it could be down to like just having like one or two years worth of expenses saved saved up which would allow people to say well i'm not going to do this anymore i'm just going to quit now but i presume that i'm perfectly capable of finding a replacement given two years you know it's just it's just a it's just a just a matter of say risk tolerance and habits and so on you know right um and i think i think i think actually i like uh jay collins Mm-hmm. The, the the blogger uh, mm-hmm. I, th- I think his original that that is something he originally did like he had a he had a few years saved up and he he wanted to go to Europe so so one day he just quit and went so I mean and I think this this might be way more common than the let let's save up you know like twenty five or thirty five or forty years of expenses before we do anything yeah I think it is more common and and the the problem is is that it's easy in an online world, you know, clearly if someone's listening to this, they're listening to a podcast, which is distributed through the internet. And it's hard sometimes if people haven't had personal interactions with, with, with people in their local life, an example that they have to talk to. So then we, we tend to think there's only just the way that we read about online. But at some point I want to sit down and chart out, you know, various degrees of, of financial freedom and, and a financial independence, because although that's my definition, the attitude that you just described of knowing that, well, I don't have to do this job. If you have a, if you have this, a, a wide, a wide network and some, and some marketable skills, you can deploy that attitude with zero dollars of capital in the bank. Right. Yeah. I, I read a book. Uh, I was reading a book this weekend. Uh, I'm going to review it, um, but it's called "The Art and Science of Dumpster Diving," mm-hmm. and <laughs> I love this stuff because you, you read. You uh, this book was written, I think, back in the '70s or '80s, and this guy's talking about how he's been a dumpster diver his entire life. Now, you wouldn't expect necessarily some you know hoity-toity financial advisor to but to to be interested in that stuff. But I say this guy solved the problem. By, by being able to find a waste stream in society that was useful for him, 
dumpsters, he was able to provide an income for him. And I see this every week when the guys drive by in their truck, uh, their truck to pick up the scrap metal off of my off of the roadside. I see this when I go down to the dump and I find people there, um, you know, kind of. Uh, utilizing the free resources from the dump, the free topsoil and the free mulch and all of this. Yeah. And you can, you can go to it, – it's the example I would give for your skills versus, versus buying. You can go to Home Depot and you can pay $3 a bag for nice pretty red mulch to put around your flowers. Or my local dump, they take all of the, the, the vegetation, they chip it up, and you can drive down there and you can take a pitchfork and toss it in the back of your trailer or your truck or whatever you got. And you can go spread it around and it costs you the gas to get there and back versus 3 bucks a bag. So you can always buy a solution, and, and, and capitalism and a, and a market economy is based upon people saying, I want to deliver a solution. Yeah, I, see somebody to, yeah. that, I see somebody some, that wants some, something, and yeah. I can meet that need. Yeah. And that's fine. I, I, made, I made a small point of, point of that in the, in, in the book in Chapter 7. Uh, at at one, one point, we had, we had like a thread on the forum. It's like, how do you understand ERE? And there, were, there, were, there was like a lot of definitions, and, and, and they, were, they were strangely like different from mine. And so I, I, I believe I kind of like have it, have it totally distilled down to like two principles, two like two fundamental principles. And the first principle is uh, try to eliminate like undesirable effort or work. And like the, the second principle is try to eliminate all kinds of pollution that is, that is sort of like undesired waste. So, so it, it's, it's very similar to, to permaculture. In, in, in the sense of trying to close the cycles, close the resource cycles. Mm-hmm. In, in, in like uh, industrialized society, it's, everything pretty much goes from producer to consumer, but people are somewhat alienated from the production process. So most people are really consumers. So they just look at what can I consume from the producers. They don't really care about, well, as a consumer, I generate waste, but that usually you know, like goes to the landfill, into the garage, down the toilet. And closing the cycle from the waste and back to the to the products is not considered either. But those, for instance, like dumpster diving, they take someone's waste and turns it into a product, and then they can consume that. So they close they close the cycle. They have eliminated some work. They have eliminated pollution. So that's 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 a that's sort of like the way to go. And the more the more cycles you can close that way, the the more the more efficient you get. Right. And, and you're stealing – don't steal all my thunder for when I do my book review for the show about, <laughs> about the art and science of dumpster diving. But, yeah. but like you just, you just stole the words out of my mouth. You find a waste stream and you close it. And, and, and the, the example that I would use – you brought up permaculture as an example, and I think it's a good example. Um, so permaculture design – I'll talk about it some other time. But if you look at permaculture design, the primary pre- principles of permaculture design is – is is simply this and how I would in how I would describe it. And just like ERE would have many different descriptions depending on what aspect you were talking about and who you were talking we were to. Talking same thing to, yeah. same thing with permaculture. But here's how I think about it. How can I design my environment to provide for all of my needs in the most efficient way possible and fi- and and care for the earth, care for people, and return a surplus. So those would be the three ethics of, of, of permaculture design, care of the earth, care for people, and return a surplus. So how can I, using those design constraints in permaculture design, how can I design my environment to, pr- to provide for myself? And so the example, the American way of, of getting rid of trash is to put it out by the road. So if I cut down branches in my yard and I haul those out to the road, then 
I pay taxes based upon my property value. Those taxes go to hire a waste company, and this waste sanitation company is going to be paid. This is going to be a for-profit company, so there's an entrepreneur uh, taking his profit at the top. Then there, that entrepreneur is hiring workers to work for them, and those workers are earning wages, which are all being taxed, so they get, they get a certain small amount going back. They drive a big diesel truck that's expensive to buy, but that does promote the diesel truck guy, but they drive a big diesel truck. The guys who are driving it are hourly workers who just want to get done with a massive with a massive load so they can't be efficient at all in their driving of the truck so they nail the gas you know screech from house to house to house they toss all of the they toss all of the 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 yard waste in the back of it they they grind it all up they take the plastic bags where i live all the landscape companies come every saturday and you know they cut all the all the lawns and so they bag everything up in a plastic bag they toss plastic into the good into the good in with the good vegetation take it down chip it up thankfully they make it available as mulch so i go down there and i get it as mulch and i can bring it back then i got to spend time picking all the plastic out of it so that i can put the mulch down on my yard or i have to go to home depot and buy it for three dollars a bag and then pour it out of a plastic bag to pour it on my yard or i can implement some decent permaculture design and i can say there's no such thing as waste i'm not going to have waste so if i've cut these trees down and I have these stumps, let me pile them up in the corner of my yard, let me plant a ring of bananas around it, and let me efficiently use and create a banana circle, which would be an incredibly rich environment on which I can grow bananas and sweet potatoes and papayas all in exactly the same place, um, efficiently utilizing the space and providing a source of fertility and using this waste stream to feed my bananas, which the bananas will then go to feed this and that and the other thing and feed my children ultimately. And exactly. so and you mean, can bypass the whole <laughs> stupid system just yeah. by understanding a little bit of design. And, and the funny thing is that then in, in, in the internet retirement police, they'll look at you and say, hey, this guy's not spending any money. He must be living <laughs> in poverty. <You> know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and so, I mean, and, and I think permaculture is one of the most useful design concepts for people to understand. Because if you un- understand permaculture design, you can start to think about how can I design my environment to provide things for me in the most efficient way. So, I mean, it's, po- it's also kind of funny. I mean, in terms of, I mean, I've sort of like tried to like, uh, take like uh, ideas from a lot of different fields and probably the permaculture guys are the people who are most compatible with what I say like they, they get it like instantly and probably the people on like the like run like investment blogs they're, they're some some of the hardest people to read and ironically also like the the, the retirement groups they, they, they also kind of like yeah you know I'm not really you know like this is wrong or something there's some kind of like cognitive dissonance but like perm- permaculture you know they're, they're used to thinking in systems and reduce uh, like uh, increasing efficiency right so yeah and and, that, so, and it's it's that kind of it's that kind of thinking that that needs to be like conveyed to sort of like the individuals not and and hopefully by conveying it to individuals the system will also start start thinking in in these pattern, in these patterns because frankly i mean as if if you look at like man, management like uh, science systems theory is, is still kind of like this kind of like minor side show and 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 people tend to look at like in in uh, like specific points they're still sort of like in specialization mode let's just look at look at like this isolated part of the system and see what we can do that do with that without considering like what kind of further effects does it have as it like interacts with the world what kind of side effects does that have right and and people really need to like start considering the the side effects of practically everything they do and the more side effects they can consider the more 
loops they can they can like the more undesirable loops they can they can close close them off and and turn like waste into a new resource right and that that's that's that 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 just that that is what drives efficiency like way higher than than sort of like the old-fashioned way of, of thinking in terms of like uh, you know like earning money spending money consumption consumption right and I, I agree with you i find i find it challenging often to be able to have I find it challenging to to break through sometimes when people are in the in the personal finance space because I look at it and I'll give you an example and and by the way you don't have to comment a bit on this so you can keep your mouth shut but I'll, I'll give you an example. I look at something like the efficient market hypothesis. So if you take if you understand the efficient market hypothesis theory of uh, theory and in investing, the efficient market hypothesis leads you to the most popular number one investment strategy that exists. Period in the financial world um, called index funds. And I don't have any problem with that, and I don't want to get into a discussion on it today. However, but taking the efficient market hypothesis to extremes leads you to say, well, the market, then the world is efficient. The world is so inefficient, it's laughable. And the areas of opportunity come from exploiting inefficiencies. And so all advancement and progress comes from exploiting inefficiencies. So you may have a theory about a well-developed capital market and it, whether it's efficient as far as setting the, the prices, but that doesn't mean that your capital market is efficient. So the investment choice should not come down to how much money can I put into my Roth IRA, although there's nothing wrong with that conversation. The investment choice should come down to what are the skills and the assets that I have, both financial and non-financial. Now, with the financial assets, what would be the most productive way Way of investing those financial assets in a way that will get me towards my further towards my goals. That may be going to school, whether formal or not. That may be buying a bike so I can get to the library. That may be going to a conference in my field. That may be putting insulation in my attic so my cooling bill is less or my heating bill is less. That may be planting a garden and learning skills and taking a permaculture design course so that I can design my property to produce surplus for me. That may be buying a mutual fund. That may be exercising skill and choosing companies that I feel have prospects because I have some knowledge of it. There's a massive world out there, but we can't give people prescriptive if you just give people prescriptive solutions and say this is what you should do, as soon as they get to the end of that, a they may not they may not get it. But as soon as they get to the end of that, they're going to say, well, what do I do now? Rather, the value is not in saying here's what you should do, but in teaching people how to think. And so yeah. my whole show is not let me tell you what you should do. It's let me tell you how I, how to think like a financial planner, so you can look at your situation and understanding the unique scenario you have of how to do. And you could use your martial arts example. You could use a driving example. You can use a permaculture example. Like if you tell someone a banana circle, you know, and, and if you understand what that is, and I won't go into it right now, but like if you say to someone, look, you can create a banana circle, then they say, well, I just got to go create banana circles. No, 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 no. Stop. Understand why a banana circle works and the principles that are behind it. And now you can deploy those principles in a completely separate field because you'll spot a little section of your land and say, ah, I know what I can do in that place in my land. Yeah, so it's kind of like the difference between like cheap teach how to fish versus like give a fish right uh i actually got some complaints or some bad reviews on my book on that just like wah, wah, wah. it doesn't contain a plan it doesn't tell me what to do and i'm like well you know if i give you a plan it, it's gonna it's like what you said you know it's gonna be good for like 10 years and then something is gonna change and if 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 you don't understand why the plan is the way it, if you don't understand how to plan you can't you can't change you're just, you're stuck there, so it's better to like learn how to plan so you can 
And if I can teach you how to plan, then I pretty much like plan for you for a lifetime. Right. And it's also kind of like amazing in, in, that, in that sense, like with the investment stuff in, in terms of like looking for efficiency and really understand what investing actually means in the sense that, I mean, there's, it's, it's, it's very common for people to say, okay, that now I've, I've worked very hard for all the money I got. I worked for like 10 years, 5 years, 20 years, 25 years. I spent like 25 years of effort. That's like 2,000 hours a year, say, but 25 years is like 50,000 hours. And then they come and say, what should I invest in? You know, like, can you just like give, I want to like, I don't want to spend more than like, say, five hours, you know, educating myself on, on how to, you know, like convert all this effort. You know, it's 50,000 50, years versus five hours. People cannot really, they, they don't want to be bothered. I just find that very strange. I mean, right. <laughs> right. And, and even worse, coming from formerly in that professional side of the market, uh, one of my personal frustrations and, and, you know, being out there, you might or being out there as a blogger, you may understand. One of my personal frustrations was this idea that, well, all investment advisors are out is to, is to screw you and get and screw you out of your money. Well, hang on a second. My favorite clients are, always have been my most you know, knowledgeable clients. The easiest clients to work with are the ones that know the most. Because then you can clearly express your value proposition. You can clearly say, here's what I do and here's what I don't do. If you value this, then you should do this. And the clients that would understand what you do and understand, okay, that makes sense to me, they're dream clients. And I could earn my, I could earn my money and earn my fees, and we'd have a beautiful relationship. But if I had a client who wasn't comfortable with the language, they weren't educated, they weren't literate, financially literate, then they would say, well, you're going to do this. No, I can't do that. Well, you're going to promise that. No, I can't promise you that I'm going to beat the market. That's not what I do. Um, well, then, and, they, and it was very, very difficult, a very, very difficult relationship to have. So I feel like what we, the, the value is if we can bring education and help enhance people's ability to understand the words and understand the terms, then the whole conversation can be lifted. I mean, and that, that even goes as far as like, you know, like hiring an electrician or a plumber. I mean, even if you don't want to learn all the skills, just knowing like the rudimentary basics, you can you can make like better hiring decisions. Yeah. And, I, and again, people don't want to do that. You know, I just want to call someone, fix my problems. You know, they'll, you know, like quote a price, you know, like $800, which kind of like comes down to like a $3 part, half an hour of effort. And then, you know, like... Uh, I don't know, six hundred dollars worth of bullshit or something. Confidence that I'm actually getting paying paying my money's worth, you know. But but if if, if people would know these kind of things, you know, that that's that's valuable, and that's that's sort of just like the linear approach to things, you know. Like back to the kind of like learning a bunch of tips and tricks, just being slightly more educated in these things. But once you start putting them together, you know, you might oh, can't really think of think of a good. Yeah, for instance, like in permaculture, they have these things called gills, which probably know as like plants that go well together. And in, in personal finance, you can also think of gills, which are kind of like plants, not plants, plants that go well together. And one of the most popular ones is kind of like the sell your big house, buy a smaller house, make sure it's closer to where you like shop and work. And this way you can eliminate your car. So like plant your little house next to your work. That way you don't have to waste money on the mm-hmm. car so that's like yeah. one guild right and that that comes from like three independent considerations right. which is which is like the housing transportation and like services or income 
Uh, another guild is sort of like the get rid of your car again, you know, start getting around by foot, by bicycle, and learn how to cook. This way you become more healthy, you eat better, and you get transported around. So these three things also go together. And just by doing that, you will avoid, you know, like two-thirds of all statistical health issues. Um, Jacob, that, so, just, that just turned a light bulb on for me. I had never thought about the application of the concept of guilds to personal finance, but that makes all the sense in the world. Cause but but I, because, you know, permaculture, you immediately understood what I said. <laughs> I do. And, <laughs> and let, let me explain, just in case someone's not familiar with permaculture, let me, let me give my explanation of a guild. Yeah. Is a guild is, 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 is like you already said it, but I want to just give a couple examples so people can understand. The idea from permaculture of a guild is a series of, of, species, of pla- uh, species of plants or a series Series of, of elements that seem to work well together that generally will produce good as good results. So this could be something very specific and prescriptive. So, uh, as an example, although it doesn't really work as well as many people think, and you the the best example that's the most overused is the concept of what they call the three sisters garden. And it's a good example of that. The Indians uh, in the United States, uh, the the Aboriginal Americans that were here before the Pilgrims came over, they used what they called the three sisters garden. And so, what that would be is a, a guild of a corn plant, a bean plant, and a squash plant. And the idea is you plant corn in the ground. Corn has a vertical stalk that grows up, that grows vertically, and you follow it with beans and with squash. And then, as the corn plant is established and grows, the bean plants will grow up the uh, will grow up the corn plant, and the squash will spread out and become a ground cover to cover the ground. And so, you're using instead of our current way of of approaching life, where you have a large cornfield and you drive your combine through, and because you have the land and you can just do that and that's more efficient, then you're using the same space and you're producing three crops. And then the interactions among them are important. So the bean plant uh, fixes nitrogen in the soil, which helps the corn plant, which is a heavy, uh, which is a heavy uh, nutrient it's a, it's a nutrient hog, and then the squash plant gives a ground cover to the ground and protects and keeps the soil moist and performs a mulching function and produces a crop. And so that would be on a plant-specific basis, or it could be applied on a larger basis. So uh, one guild, for example, if you're into organic agriculture, you'll see uh, Joel Salatin. He, Joel Salatin has a guild of cows and chickens together, and I'm using the word loosely, but you pasture your cows through, you move them in a rotational cropping system, you follow them with chickens behind, the chickens scratch up the cow manure. The cows mow the grass for the chickens so the chickens can actually do that. The chickens uh, scratch up the cow manure and eat all the bugs that are growing in the cow manure. And so they're, they're fed. And then they, their scratching function distributes the manure through, the, distributes the, manure through the, the pasture. And so you have this beautiful system that works perfectly because so it's designed. Yeah, you're essentially closing off all the loops, right. water, nitrogen, right. and, and you're making the system more efficient. So that concept of guilds applied to financial planning solves that's a light bulb for me because you Exactly right. One guild would be move close to your job and learn and 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 dispense with and move close to your job. So that allows you to downsize your the number of cars in your house or to sell your car. You know, to get rid of all your cars. That allows you to get more physical exercise, saves you money, allows you to become more financially independent more quickly. However, the op, another guild might be figure out a job that you love and figure out how to be so good at it that you can uh, earn a massive amount of money so that even though you're fairly inefficient with your spending, you've built great wealth. Like or, Cal Newport or what? <laughs> right, right, right. Or, or, or 
become this world-class entrepreneur. And when you're turning around and making millions and millions of dollars, you can, ulti- you can become uh, a multimillionaire, a multibillionaire, and you're not really so worried about the expense side. It's a perfect... I would, I would, I, yeah, I, would, I would warn about the passionate approach a little bit, though. Uh, I mean, I, I used to sort of be a passionate you know, worker myself. You still there? Yes, I am. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes the noise just cuts out. Okay. So, I mean, I remember when I was like 28, you know, doing doing nutrient star physics and I was like commenting to myself and everybody and you was like, this stuff is awesome. You know, like even if I wasn't getting paid, I'd still do it. I imagine doing this until I'm 85, until I can't do it anymore. You know, I would come in on weekends and Saturday, Sundays, just, just checking to see if there was some kind of like new thing coming out of the computer. Uh, and I see there's there's like a lot of people coming like I would say straight out of college getting their first awesome job you know and not being able to imagine that they might ever grow tired of it and but if if you then ask them like ten years later there's 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 definitely a, a quite 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 a fall off and while you say like no that I mean having saved money is a backup plan but like losing passion passion doesn't have like a backup plan right it's it's very hard to get like re-passionate about something or having the skills to immediately become passionate about something else so it's it's kind of like a risky proposition uh it's 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 especially risky in in what i like to call like rock star professions right that is that is i mean you can you can see whether you're in a rock star profession by by essentially walking into like an office and then look at look at look at like the aids distribution of the people there so if if you see like a lot of young people, but you see maybe a few thirty years, or you see maybe like ten percent thirty year olds, like it's like maybe like someone who's forty, but there's practically no fifty, sixty year olds other than maybe as a as a executive or like a secretary or something, but none none of none in like the promotional line. Then you're probably in a rock star business. Academia is that way, you know. Each professor tends to train like. Uh, 10 successors and obviously only one of them can replace said professor mm-hmm. right um and that that's kind of like where the passion is the passion approach is, is very dangerous i mean if 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 if, if it's it's if, if you're like passionate about say like uh uh plumbing or um driving a truck or something something that scales where your effort sort of like translates into a product one-to-one then, then the passionate approach can work. But if you're in in in, uh, in a rock star profession, like you know, like being an author, where like the number one author sells like a thousand times more than like the number ten author, who again sells like a thousand times more than the number twenty author or number hundred author, or like software engineering, where like the most productive guy is perhaps a hundred times as productive as the least productive guy, then it. If, if there's this kind of scaling, passion is is, is dangerous. Right, and so here yes. would be, and I'm curious. I'll, I want I want your feedback on my concepts. Let's apply yeah. the let's apply permaculture concepts to this again. If we said we've got this really great guild 
but we're not going to consider what our the water transfer across our property is like. We're not going to consider the nutrient cycles. We're not cons we're not going to consider the the shade requirements or the sun requirements. We're not going to consider the solar aspect. Then no matter how great this guild is, it's going to no matter how great this guild of plants that we've put together is when they're in an ideal environment if we haven't considered these larger infrastructure needs in our in our plan then the whole thing falls apart and which, yeah. so so which, what I, which was also kind of like drives home the necessity of understanding why the strategy is what right. it is not just what it is you know right and so here's what I see between financial planning and and I've worked hard. I, I still struggle with. I'm trying to write something to introduce the show with, as far as you know, a couple of lines of here's what the Radical Personal Finances podcast is about. I'm struggling with it because I'm struggling to describe it. But the closest I've gotten is essentially to bridge the gap between the idealistic visions and goals and dreams and the practical realities of today. That's the closest I've gotten so far. And what I'm trying to express is that. There's no, I don't see any reason not to pursue doing something that you enjoy. All else considered equal, no matter whether it's a job that you're passionate about or not. If you're, if you're, if you're facing the decision, would I, I, I could be equally qualified as a plumber or I could equally be qualified as an electrician. And let's assume that you're not that passionate about them. Then which one, you're going to consider certain effects, certain earning abilities, certain lifestyle characteristics. But at the end of the day, it's a valid consideration to consider, I think I would enjoy electrical work more than plumbing work and to choose to do something we enjoy. All of us do that. And so there, that's a valid consideration. However, to say to somebody which is sold in some circumstances, do what you're passionate about. So don't worry about your expenses. Don't worry about your tax planning. Don't worry about your income. Just take a flying leap off into the dark. That does nothing for you. But if you understand and apply the financial, um, the financial laws that do exist in good planning, you can still pursue the passion. And I'll give you an example. Let's say that somebody wants to start a company. I read a, I read a company. I think it may have been a Dutch entrepreneur. or, or he, was up from, he was in Scandinavia somewhere. And he wanted to start an Internet company, but he had no money. And he was really a passionate coder, and he wanted to do it. So what he chose to do was he chose to move out into public land on a tent because his coding didn't require an active Internet, internet connection. And so he bought a tent, and he moved out on public land, and he was able to stretch, and he lived in a tent. It was in Scandinavia in a nice climate during the summertime. And he lived in a tent for a period of months so that he could code his, so that he could code his, uh, his computer, uh, his program. And it wound up being successful, and then he was able to transform his life. So he applied the financial planning realities of I have, to, I have limited resources. I need to be efficient with those resources. I need to spend less than I make. It would be foolish of me to go deeply into debt to ch chase a passion that may or may not work out. But he still was able to pursue the thing that he wanted to do by applying those, those, that strategy. Um, that was a mouthful, but I, I, I see them as being able to be integrated if you fully understand both of them and don't just turn a blind eye to one or the other. Yeah, it's sort of like be realistic, not idealistic. It's right. That's the key. I and mean, make a plan. Yeah. I think, I think, I mean, it's my experience in the U.S. People tend to be like a lot more realistic than like where I got my, my education where we were always told, just go study whatever you're most interested in. Mm -hmm. And I later found out that the reason they tell you that is that the universities are paid by the state according to the number of people they graduate. Mm -hmm. And obviously, if the students are interested in what they're studying, the likelihood of someone, I mean, you, they wouldn't get anything until the people, ha until the student had like a piece of paper with a degree on it. If they flunked out like syrupy. 
And so that's like a huge conflict of interest right there. Right. And as as a consequence of, of as a consequence of that, like a lot of people have gotten essentially sold down the river, ending up with like very useless degrees. Right. Uh, right. And I think this whole passion spiel kind of does a little bit the same over here it with does, people yeah. going into into debt. You know, like at you know, like private universities getting a degree in like uh, clock making or whatever, under, underwater bas- basket weaving, mm-hmm. and. Right. They can't. They cannot possibly make it back, you know. And some very simple, like financial considerations, should have shown that, you know. Like, what right. what is the person with such a degree? What are their like prospects and so on? So, like, my suggestions have always been okay. So, first thing you do is first you kind of like have to. It's kind of like an iterative process, you know. First, you write a list of what am I, I inter, what am I interested in, like perhaps working at, and then you go through that list with an eye for okay which of these make money you know like uh, which of these have like good prospects it's probably a better way of putting it you know they don't necessarily have to make a lot of money but they have to at least be able to like provide or be useful so they're not a waste of time so now you have like you know like your derived list now then you go back to that list and say, okay what i'm now 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 the list is realistic and then you pick out of that one instead of the first one mm-hmm which which just had like the I mean I guess all this is obvious but I mean it's 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 obvious in in retrospect exactly uh, but it's not obvious when you're like a 17 or 19 year old and trying to like pick your major from like a huge list of like opportunities and everybody tells you just to do what you're passionate about right and I'll give you I'll, I'll lend some credence to your argument and then I actually want to pivot the conversation um uh I want to pivot the conversation a little bit, but I'll lend. I'll use your earlier example to give you uh, to show how I see it as very applicable to every area, including education. I was struck this weekend. I was listening to I was listening to a new podcast. I try to avoid financial podcasts because I don't want to repeat something that someone else is doing. So mm-hmm. I look Echo for chamber. yeah, exactly. Because I, I remember <laughs> I remember what I hear and what I learn, and I'm really mm-hmm. concerned of, uh, if I forget to cite somebody and I say you know well such and such this person <laughs> you know and I yeah. steal I don't want to steal somebody's idea and yeah, not was, give them there credit. The, there, there, there was a question on, on on one of the forum lists like uh-huh. what what other personal finance blogs or blogs in any case to right. actually regularly read and I'm pretty much close to none whatsoever is the answer <laughs> good so yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah I, and I understand that and yeah. um, and what I was going to do is is I know we're going long but uh, I enjoy the conversation if you got time I want to uh, do a good service to those forum participants and kind of go rapid, rapid, rapid fire through a couple of their questions and let you just uh, answer in a couple sentences or, or as long as you want. But, um, but I want to. The point about education. So, so I try to avoid financial. Um, I try to avoid financial podcasts, especially because I don't want to steal anything that someone else is doing. I want all of us to contribute to the conversation in a positive way. And uh, so I, I was listening and I found I heard on a different show I heard a reference to something called the Thomas Jefferson podcast and so I went and checked this out and I I've I found I was stunned by how great this show is and this is the show is done by a uh, it's a, it's distributed on on NPR as well as on a podcast and the show is done by a professor who is a, an extremely learned humanities scholar and he's an expert on Thomas Jefferson and so in the first part of the show the entire show and he's up to they're almost at 100 episodes something like that is about Thomas Jefferson only and so he, they were talking about Thomas Jefferson's education and in our country, we, we view something education as something that we buy. 
So as a financial planner in, in the past, most of the time when people would ask me, I'm concerned about education, what they mean is I'm concerned about paying for my kid's education. So I don't know how I'm going to pay for this private school, if it's primary or secondary school. I don't un understand how I'm going to pay for college because the cost of college is increasing at 7% per year. And so we've, and I sit down and say, well, let's talk about it. And the, the answer is that nobody can afford to save enough for their kid's college education, period. I've never seen the client who's done it. The people who pay for college are the ones, is, are people who are rich, and they just usually pay out of cash flow, although we still can apply some, some financial planning techniques. So if anyone wants to know the financial planning techniques, there's the short answer. But we view education as something we buy rather than as a skill we learn. And so I was struck in listening to the Thomas Jefferson. I learned that Thomas Jefferson, he went to college when he was 16 years old. He never had any formal schooling before that that the, that the, 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 the professor referenced. He had the informal schooling of the day. But his father had a, a pretty sizable library for the time of about 40 books, and he would read all those books, and he would borrow, and he would work in the community and read those books. He went to college at the College of William and Mary at the age of 16. He spent five, uh, either five or seven years, uh, I get, I'm getting these confused because I only heard it once, but he spent, I think it was, five, it was seven years in college. But the entire time he was in college, he read for 15 to 17 hours every single day. He read for 15 to 17 hours a day. And then, and he engaged with topics, and not just reading, you know, loose books. He was reading all of the literature of the Western civilization, basically. He was reading in, uh, in English, in Latin, in Greek. He was reading the literature of the Western civilization that has con 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 uh, contributed to the current world that we live in. Then he went and he apprenticed as a law clerk. As a, uh, he went into the field of law and he spent another, I think it was maybe it was five years in college and then seven years as an apprentice to this law clerk. And he continued reading for 15 to 17 hours a day. And I was just struck by, here's this man who's made probably in many ways greater contributions to the American society than any other of, of this country's forefathers. And his education was something that, that he did, but, but it was hard work. It wasn't something that he bought. And today, information is free. It's completely free. You could go to the library and you could read for 15 to 17 hours a day for free. But yet nobody thinks about getting the education. We think about buying the education by buying the college degree. Um, so there's my rant for the day. But, but you're right. You can, either, you can either gain the skill or you can buy the solution. You can buy the degree, and it may or may not be useful for you, or you can apply yourself and learn the knowledge. And I mean, so so I, I was just doing some like quick mental calculations there, like seven years of like uh, fifteen hours a day or sixteen hours a day amounts to something like twenty five thousand to thirty thousand hours. Exactly. So if you go like with the with the expertise rules, that's 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 becoming an expert in, in like three different fields, or probably like a minor expert in like thirty different fields, and. So, I mean, I've read a ton as well, and I know people who have also read a ton, you know, like yeah, one of my friends was at one point keeping keeping track with about 800 RSS feeds. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and, and one of the things I've sort of noticed is that sort of like the underlying, um, have, you, have you heard of Charlie Munger's, uh, Charles Munger's, the Berkshire Hathaway guy's partner's uh, lattice work? His lattice work or his lettuce Lat work? Lattice no, I'm not like familiar with that. Work. Like, so, so the idea is that basically all human understanding can be summarized in about 100 different like metaphors or models or ways of thinking. Yes, okay. 
and I found that to be true. <laughs> that that there's like a limited amount of ways to understand pretty much everything you can possibly read or experience. And once you sort of like have a good grasp of most of these, then it becomes extremely easy to learn new things. Uh, if you already, for instance, have a good grasp of like physics, for instance, you can get a grasp of like finance and economics pretty quickly, much, much more quickly than if you didn't. If you already understand how to speak French as a foreign language, it might not be that hard to pick up, say, Spanish. Um, if you know how to, uh, say, do plumbing, doing electric work is not hard. If you know how to do woodworking with 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 uh, hand tools, constructing like random stuff out of like plastic, or uh, is becomes easy. And so there's this sort of like exponential benefit to this kind of education of just reading and reading and maybe not just reading because I mean reading also sort of like follows an S-curve in, in, in the sense that there's mm -hmm. at one point sort of like a diminishing uh, point of returns. I mean there's also some questions, so what kind of books have I read lately? And I would say I, I actually don't read that much anymore either because one thing, one thing I found and others I know who read a lot have found is that you, at one point, you find yourself, you read through an entire, like, nonfiction book. You know, like, 300 pages, bestseller, etc. You find maybe, like, two sentences that, okay, this is an interesting idea, I'll just add it. The rest of the time was, like, a waste of time. Right. Uh, so, so instead, I kind of started attacking, like, technical skills, you know, like, uh, how do I fix a faucet or something. So, I'm, that's, that's kind of, like, what I'm currently interested <laughs> in. Um, oh. Yeah, I've had that same experience that you just said it, yeah. with... with I mean, you reach a point where things just make sense to you. And yeah. I mean, I learned that with financial planning and, and you're, I was always interested in personal finance. And so I, you would learn, I would study the tactics and the techniques and I would tell my friends, I would tell my friends, you know, here's what you should do. Here's what you should buy. And then I learned kind of through doing financial planning, I, I started to learn some other, other things. And then now when I talk with someone, it's, it's kind of interesting, uh, right at the end before I close my financial planning practice, when I would talk with someone, I had this vivid, vi there's this lunch that's vivid for me. And the guy, the guy that, that called me up, we sat down for lunch, and, and I'll make the story very short. We sat down for lunch, and he was, he was like, I think I need to do this XYZ thing because I'm way behind for retirement, and this, 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 this. And, I, and just the whole picture just kind of clicked in my head, and I could just... It's going to sound weird, but it, it felt like art. Like I understood. I've never been able to express myself visually, creatively speaking, with, with, with paint or with drawing or things like that. I've always struggled with that. But I had the feeling that I think some people have with those visual expressions. I had the feeling of just seeing the picture in my head and just seeing the plan. And it was part, it was part technical tax plan, and it was part career plan, and it was part motivation plan, and it was <laughs> like, <laughs> but I yeah, said, I I mean. but, but he walked out, and I shared the plan in about like 10 minutes, and he walked out, and, he, and his jaw dropped, and he said, you know, when I came in for lunch, I, I, I was... This is what I was feeling. And then when he left, um, you know, he says, wow, you're exactly right. And I can see how in a very short period of time this could be achieved. And now 
it still has to be implemented. Just having a good plan, you know, your book could set someone financially free in five years. But just having the book and doing the book and doing the <laughs> implementing are two different things. Right. But you reach that point of, and of mastery where it just kind of you see things, and then you get you kind of get done with the subject over over after a while, and you're ready to move on to something completely unrelated because it gets really boring. And you read through, and I go down to the bookstore and I just say, let me look through the top ten personal finance books, and and I don't wish to be cruel because I love. That the every author is contributing, but for me at this stage, I'm like boring, 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 boring. Done, yeah. done. Got it, get it. Yeah, okay. That's this angle. That's this angle. Fine, that works. That works. This doesn't mean I've achieved. I haven't. I haven't arrived. But I don't need to read that anymore. Uh, I need to go and read permaculture design and think about how on earth, uh, you know, how on earth can I figure out how to plant my trees in such a way that I can shade my house from the sun so my air conditioner is not running constantly <laughs> during the summertime. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's on a similar level, it's, it's like learning the multiplication table, right? Uh, you, you go, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, what, what, some of these insights you talk about is a little bit like what I understand enlightenment to be, or like an enlightenment moment mm-hmm. where you just feel everything sort of like fit into place and do exactly the right thing. I mean, it doesn't have to be like intellectual, you can also like experience it with. Like, if, if, if you do like a particularly good run with a hockey puck. You know, where you're just in the flow. The Western interpretation of this is not enlightenment; it's flow. But it, that's exactly what 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 you're looking for. So, I'm I'm kind of I'm very curious about this 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 kind of like mental stage one can one can reach. I mean, I've, I've read a lot of about it, and I like well, there's, there's this kind of Zen Buddhist saying of like be, be, before enlightenment, you you chop wood and carry water, and after enlightenment, you chop wood and carry water. It's but what what's interesting there is like the process in between, you know, where where like Zen Buddhist monks spend, you know, like many years trying to meditate their way out of their previous conceptions. And so like a lot of like effort goes in into like understanding the new way, but you can't Are you there? But once you've seen the new way then the entire process of like getting to the new way becomes sort of like irrelevant. It's not really very interesting anymore, at least not to most people. I mean, if you want to become a teacher, for instance, then it could remain interesting. And I think it seems to happen fairly commonly, especially like, I mean, you can see it like in personal finance blogging, people like, they're they're, they're like these these kind of like blogging rules. That's like the 90-day rule. Uh, which is that most people have no more than 90 unique ideas. So once people have made like 90 blog posts, it's like, okay, now what do I do? Yeah. Now a few few kind of move above, uh, beyond that and they can keep like saying things. And then there's another barrier, which is like the two-year rule. After two years, you know, that kind of like running dry again. I've been saying the same thing over and over again. There's a five-year rule too and so on. Most, I, I know very few people who have lasted like more than five five years unless say you want to sort of become the teacher rather than sort of like the student teacher who kind of learns as they go along and write about the stuff right i mean Um, that's why i'm glad you retired because you i mean from from the blog because you said i read somewhere it may have been in your book or maybe it's one of your posts you said i don't have anything more to add to the content to the conversation here's my book on the subject i'm done done. and i hereby pass the torch (laughs) and that's how it should be right i mean there's i mean it also like makes room for others to come exactly i mean that's like really i mean you're you're almost i mean what one of one of the main 
things I observed was that I was I would think I have had 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 gotten like a great new idea, so I, I write down a blog post and then I press publish and then I had this like really annoying plug plugin called like similar posts or something, <laughs> which would find three posts that are like similar in content and I read those posts and I'm like, oh no, these were so much better. <laughs> I was much much better at expressing this like two two or three years ago. When, when these were first written. So after, after you know, like experiencing this practically every time I wrote a new blog post, it was kind of like, you have to sort of like have sufficient like self-acknowledgement and knowledge or whatever right. to say, okay, I'm done. You know, I have, it's, it's, I'm only hurting myself here if I keep keep going down this path, you know. Right. And it, you, you really, I mean, you really don't want to become dead wood, essentially, just being there because you were there historically. Right. Uh, and that that that's that's a big reason why I why I moved on to I, do other things. And I think that's great. And I think that that I think that fin- blogging financial blogging for money is not a sustainable proposition. I think financial not that you can't I don't think not that you can't make money on it. I, I think there's a lot of people that are doing fine, but that is not a way to get rich. Uh, it should be a way to contribute and to learn. And I think it will benefit the blogger more than it will benefit. Um, it should benefit the blogger. I read a I read a book uh, or I read I heard an interview with William Bernstein. Um, or no 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 not William Bernstein. The guy who wrote uh, the book. Um, uh, I don't remember. I heard a book with uh, it was a book. It was either stock. It was it wasn't stocks for the long run. It was another book. There was a similar a similar example. It may have been stocks for the long run. And it may have been William Bernstein. I'm, I'm blanking, but his point was somebody was asking him. The interviewer was asking him about what his next project was, and he talked about his book. And he says, you know, I use books as a way of learning about things that I'm interested in. And right. it, it was in a completely different field. And he'd written four, five, six books. This was the guy, and again, it may have been Bernstein. It was a guy who's a physician, and uh, he's a physician, and then he uh, wrote these books on investing. And he says, I, I write books, and that just gives me a structure for the research that I'm doing on something that I'm interested in. So it allows me to, to guide my interests. And then I figure I might as well write a book summarizing everything I've learned about it so that I have something to refer back to in the future of all the things I learned about these things I'm interested in. And I'll I thought, yeah. perfect. <laughs> that is perfect. That's how it should be, is that I'm interested yeah. in something. So if it's finance, that's why I love, I'm going to FinCon this year, which is a, a conference of financial bloggers. And I'm excited about meeting financial bloggers because I love meeting people who are saying, I'm serious about my money. I'm going to take this on. I'm going to write a get out of debt blog. I'm I'm going to write an investing blog. I'm going to write this, you know, this certain thing. And how exciting is that? Because what better way is there to learn about something than learning about it and writing about it? So, and it also like, I mean, I, I wrote my book pretty much concurrently with, with the blog. I started the project probably like six, six months after I started the blog, I got contacted by uh, an editor from one of the big publishing houses uh, that oh, you should write a book. We'd be very interested in, or like I would be. The editor said she would be very interested in like trying to promote this for the company. And I was like, okay. Well, I, I mean, I was I was sort of like really flattered. So I said, okay, sure, I'll start writing a book. But I'm not gonna send the proposal, etc. I'm gonna like write this and I'm gonna finish it, and then I'm gonna give you like finished copy. And so all this kind of like that was like a lot of effort trying to rehash, you know, the things already in you, like intuitively put put like structure onto it and 
given like my academic background, the book kind of ended up looking a lot like a textbook. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I have the Kindle version. It's less intimidating than... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's no section numbers, like in sub, sub, sub section numbers. <laughs> yeah, I've got a section open here. It is kind of funny. Uh, yeah. I have to chuckle at the academic language, which the question yeah. I'm going next, and then we'll kind of get to the, get to wrapping up here. But uh, yeah. I, was, I was reading here. Storing also avoids having to engage in the proverbial scramble for milk, eggs, and bread whenever the weather forecast is unfavorable. <laughs> and I chuckled and I said, you academic, you. <laughs> um, I have one question. This is, I, I alluded to this earlier. This is my personal question, which I have been itching to ask you, and I'm interested in your response. Uh, and then if you've got a few minutes, I want to run through these uh, rapid fire through the questions from the forums uh, if, and see if there's anything we haven't covered and let you just give a couple, couple sentence responses. You say in your book, budget $80 a month per person for food and only shop once a week, keeping track of food costs with a notebook about paying in cash. As novices, you may find it challenging to spread the budget equity over the month, blah, blah, blah. Okay, 80 bucks a month, uh, 80 bucks a month per person per, per month. My wife and I, we, are, we consider ourselves pretty skilled. We can't seem to crack 400. How on earth, are you still doing this or is this total, is this a lie in your book or, are you, or did, you, can you, did you actually figure out how to spend 80 bucks a month per person? Yeah, I actually figured out 80 bucks per person, but then I stopped cooking and my wife took over, so now we spend about 200 to 250. Per person or, or for the two of you? Uh, total. Uh, that includes ah. the dog too and like household stuff. So you're still <laughs> half of what I'm at. So how, do you, how do you do it and eat any kind of healthy healthy options? Like what are, what are some of the techniques and the, the skills that you employ? Because we can't, we can't seem to crack well, this your nut. Well, your main costs are probably going to be uh, basically meat and dairy, dairy, like meat and cheese and milk and stuff like that. Uh, things like uh, pasta, rice, beans, uh, legumes, uh, Vegetables, as in the sense of raw vegetables. Uh, put it put it another way. So, like, there's this like what's called like the standard American diet, or SAD for as the as the acronym, which is which is sort of like very self descriptive. And that diet is kind of characterized by the selection of things you find in in, in most supermarkets. It's kind of like uh, it's 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 canned pre processed food. It's like lots of meat packages. Uh, it's like a big dairy se- section. Uh, um, and, and that is that is kind of like what most people eat, and that's not ultimately very healthy. So what what we eat a lot of is, is could could be kind of characterized as either Mexican, Indian, or Chinese food. Um, so we practically shop like in the perimeter of the grocery store, which is the the produce we get from regular grocery stores. We do like bulk purchases. Well, like we buy like uh, go to ethnic stores. Like typically, they're typically run by immigrants, um, and you go buy, you know, like fifty pounds of rice or something. Or you can get you can get produce really inexpensively there as well, and they typically have like a much larger selection as well. Um, so that's, I mean, cook everything from scratch essentially, and and cut down. Think 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 of meat as like a, a side dish or a condiment, something that changes the taste but does not really like uh, constitute like the the main part of the dish in any way. But how and, do you how do you do? I mean, do you try to restrict your carbohydrates at all? Because that's my concern. I'm overweight, and so I'm yeah. trying to kind of restrict my carbohydrate intake, and I can't seem to figure out how to do that without relying, you know, on meat uh, and vegetables. Do you have any tips there? No, I, I wouldn't say it's not. It's not like it's not like we're going Atkins or Paleo or anything. Um, 
So, I mean, if you want to restrict carbohydrates, the, the immediate solution would be to like eat more, eat more green stuff. Uh, that would require like a ton of green stuff. Uh, essentially, fruits and uh, vegetables do not have like a, a lot of carbohydrates in them. Right. But um, and the other thing I think is if you if you go down and look in our fridge, we we just got like an under the counter cooking like nineteen twenty style instead of like nineteen eighty style, and that almost everything gets made from produce or like uh, bulk uh, like rice etc on on the day it's it's eaten so the only thing we have in a, in in our fridge is essentially like a bottle of ketchup and and leftovers from the day before hmm. whereas like in in i would say in most american fridges what you find these like huge huge double door fridges and they're like just full of food and i can only presume that there's a lot of food waste going on there I mean, we have practically no food waste, yeah. so that's that's like another leak, leak to uh, another loop to 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 close off. Do you but, st- uh, do you still practice uh, after after I read your book and read your ideas on the warrior diet? I went and read Ori Hoffmeckler's book, and uh, yeah. I try I did it for a few weeks, and I thought it was a really interesting interesting experience. Do you practice that that style of eating? Yeah, I do. Uh, my wife doesn't. Okay. So I, I found I. I I mean, I'm I'm lazy. So I mean, if I can if I can save like half an hour in the morning and half half an hour at lunch, not eating, then I'm I'm happy doing that. Yeah, I haven't found like... <laughs> I haven't found that to work for me because yeah. for me, meal time is a primary social time and time yeah. with my with my family, and so like breakfast is my favorite meal of the day to sit down and spend 30 45 minutes before the day starts and just have kind of a quiet time to visit and and be, and be with my family and then lunch same thing good time in the middle of the day to, although I'm usually I'm quicker about lunch and then dinner you know I want to linger over dinner so I haven't been able to get out of that social construct of having of having um brec- yeah. breakfast as a social event and being happy with a cup of coffee or or a cup of tea but I did I did uh do it for a couple of weeks and I found it surprisingly after I adjusted I found it surprisingly easy to do and I thought this is a great solution if someone doesn't have that that social uh, the, mm-hmm. the social problem that I have. Oh, you can do like other social things. You are right. Um, all right. So I'm going to go rapid fire just through a couple of these questions from, uh, from, uh, from the forums just to, cause these forum participants were awesome to help us out. Uh, are you inflating your lifestyle? We answered that question. You're spending less. Uh, so are you just simply saving the money that you're earning? Yeah. Yeah. It's just piling yeah. up. Great. What post on your blog are you the proudest of? Uh, I don't really have like a particular post. I would say I'm probably most proud of the book. Yeah. Because the post was kind of like a hodgepodge. So I just had written a post whenever I felt I had something to say. I just like hammered it down, you know, like in 32. Most of these, even the long posts were written like extremely fast, which is why they tend to be like full of typo, typos and grammatical mistakes. You know, the 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 kind of like things like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, there are posts that are sort of like more successful than others, and I put those in the in the side sidebar posts that kind of like hook hook people in. But I wouldn't say I'm like proud of any of them in, in particular. Is there a topic you regret publishing about? 
Uh, yeah, I probably should not have said anything negative about index investing, investing <laughs> because I kind of like called out the Inquisition. I still get flagged for this, you know. It's like I said, well, there might be this kind of particular problem about this, and at the time, nobody was really thinking about it. Now, I get, now like so probably like once a year or something, some someone posts something like Jacob hates index investing. You know, is this can this really be? You know, like and then people are just hammering me. Which is kind of sad and pathetic, but you know, yeah. So I wish I hadn't written those because I, I don't think they, they help people much in terms of like their investment knowledge anyway. Yeah, <laughs> you can see that even reflected in the forum posts where several people are saying, "Ask him about index investing." <laughs> we won't, we won't talk about it. But I really on, on the advanced level, so they take the wrong message out. Right. Of it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And um, exactly, we'll leave it. Th- we'll leave it there. Uh, any plans for the future that you want to talk about? Feel free to say no. Um, yeah, so I mean, current, we, we just bought a, bought a house. Actually, we bought it in cash as sort of was planned many years ago, a couple of, couple of, couple of uh, months ago. And it, it was like a fixer-upper. So, so we're currently like overwhelmed with trying to figure out how to like fix all these things that needs to be fixed. Um, Long term, we'd like to do some permaculture in the garden. I'd like to learn how to do machine work, like welding and machining. Um, like to build a boat uh, of travel plans. We are sort of like once my current job is over and once my wife doesn't really feel like she wants to work anymore, we want to essentially do a very extended camping trip, visiting a lot of different parts of the U.S. Uh, we've also talked about and that probably comes after that once we've gotten used to living out of a tent uh to uh sail the intracoastal waterway doing a doing a loop there but i mean these are all sort of like plans and the probability of them working out might be small but it's something we think about come uh, on, if you do sail the intracoastal come on down and stay with me we, uh, right, we right, live yeah. <laughs> my house is about a half mile from the intracoastal yeah. uh, so you got a spot in fact i actually just sold a bicycle to a guy who had done that a young guy from up in the northeast he'd bought this old junky sailboat is not mm-hmm. does not at all seaworthy but yeah. he he had bought it for cheap and he'd sailed down from somewhere up in i don't know northeast somewhere and he'd sailed it down the intracoastal and he was planning to stay in uh stay in in um in West Palm Beach, where I actually was Jupiter, and so he bought my he bought an old uh, old junky ten speed bicycle I had on Craigslist, and uh, he was so great, totally must uh, totally um, e- ere. I was about to say mustachian, sorry. Um, <laughs> I, the same thing, <laughs> same thing, right? So totally uh, totally frugal. He says, "Hey, can you deliver it?" And so he didn't have a car, so I didn't realize until I got there and sold it to him. He said, "Do you have any kind of like bike pump?" So <laughs> the way it worked out is I wound up delivering his bicycle to him. It needed a little bit of work, but he'd already Googled to find a bike shop nearby that he could go and get a, get some tubes yeah. and, and whatnot. I hadn't fixed it up. And it got delivered with a with a bike pump and everything for a good deal. So, so he could continue living on his, bo- on his boat and working. I think he was working at a gym near, the, near his boat somewhere. Uh, but that was fun. Um, question. Miss Library Joy would love it if you describe your wedding. <laughs> well, that was a compromise as... With many other things, so like my personal preference, I don't, I don't like really like big spectacle, spectacles and so on. So my my ideal wedding would have been that if we just went down to city hall and signed a piece of like the few pieces of paper. Uh, my wife wanted sort of like a family wedding, 
uh, in, in the backyard and her sister had like a really great backyard uh, and so like uh, where the compromise fell that we only invited half the guests that were originally intended so only like closest family so uh, that that pretty much was like a uh, barbecue in, in in the back of her sister's yard with you know like the what's it called the uh, the the metal thing you know that makes like a uh, you stand on that, etc. The whatever uh, trell- the arbor or Tre- trellis, yeah, yeah. trellis. Um, so yeah, it's kind of very informal, and uh, yeah. The as I- so me- mo- we mostly went uh, with with the wife's way of wanting things <laughs> compromise. <laughs> it's another one of those areas where I think whatever people choose to do that's right for them is 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 great. But I tell you, I've seen so so much the syst- the idea that has been perpetuated in our culture of having a big fancy wedding and then the burden that that puts on the young couples when their parents aren't able to pay for it or their parents are choosing not to pay for it, that they still do it. I don't understand. And my wife and I, we, we didn't have an inexpensive wedding. We didn't have an expensive wedding. We had a wedding that was exactly how we wanted it to be. And we were very blessed with it. But I talk a lot of times and I just say, I don't understand how it is that it's supposed to be your wedding, your party. So you're going to pay a lot of money to throw a big party for all of your friends who are coming together to celebrate you. But especially if you don't have the money and then you're do- and you borrow the money and you're doomed with paying this off for the next four years of your life. <laughs> How much yeah, better? Well, Take the money and go go travel, elope and go use it on traveling around the world for a year or two. Be selfish. Yeah. But I um, mean I, I completely agree with that. I mean I mean there were some things that 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 money was spent on that might not have like met my efficiency standards, but made my wife happy. I mean she she got to wear like a, a dress the kind of dress that's really only worn once, mm-hmm. which kind of like ate, a, I think, a quarter of the money. I gave her a ring, which ate half the money of the entire project, which at the time I think was 1% of my net worth. So <laughs> knowing that number is always good. I think I think that's also like what Warren Buffett spent at that point. That's where I got the idea, okay, you should spend... You know, it's kind of like people always say, like, uh, what, what's a, what's an engagement ring supposed to cost, you know? And it's, it's like two months' salary or three months' salary. And... It was funny. We had, we had some people at, at work discussing discussing that, and I'm telling them, no, 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 it's completely wrong. It should be 1% of your net worth. Are you familiar <laughs> with the history of engagement rings with the De Beers family and the marketing campaign that brought that tradition <laughs> around? Have you ever researched that? I, I, I know I know some some of how they figured out how to like create an entire market so they could sell sell diamonds. I haven't. Yeah, I've I've mm-hmm. completely a manufactured market. Yeah, uh, it, it's astounding. Uh, completely yeah. a manufactured market. But it's, go research it and form your own opinions. But I I, I think it's amazing. Yeah, it's a, it's a crazy idea. Uh, but yeah, it's it's sort of like a prevalent idea. So you just gotta kind gotta do what you gotta do. I mean, <laughs> I saw a humorous skit. I can't remember. I saw a humorous skit on YouTube and a guy was going into into that and he was saying yeah here's all the history here's all the history and yet you're still doomed <laughs> like yeah. there's no way that if you <laughs> if you right. love your, your your girlfriend or your fiance and you're in our culture like no matter how much you're going to describe you know this doesn't make any rational sense i still bought my wife a uh, an engagement ring that she really loves and i i was happy to do it it's yeah. culture I would, also, I would also say like like in terms of priority like with half the money going into the ring it's kind of like versus the party it's kind of like the party is one day and it's going to be like a memory 
from that point and if you're like not very path oriented then memories are not as important whereas like the ring you're kind of going to look at every single day you know so my idea was we're probably going to get most enjoyment out of so it was somewhat efficiently allocated in that sense what's the craziest thing that north americans spend their money on to you i reasoning sorry i think i spoke over you what what do you think is the craziest thing that north americans spend their money on Just talking about the engagement ring. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll just go on to the next question because I think yeah, sure. we, we just we had we had finished, and I'd asked another question when you when you yeah. when you dropped out. So the question, next question was, what do you think is the craziest thing that you see North Americans spending all their money on? Um, probably the financialization of everything. You know, people people turning themselves into you know what is euphemistically called recurring cash flows. Like cell phones is a great example now. Right. Uh, do you own a cell phone? I do own a cell phone. After many, many you years, finally of, like, succumbed. <laughs> I finally bought one. Uh, it's it's not it's not a smartphone. It's a dumb phone. Uh, it has a plan, which is something like uh, forty dollars a year. It's like refill, and then I, I practically never use it. I don't think I've carried it around for two weeks now. Uh, Still there? Yep, I'm still here. Okay. Yeah, I was just was, was letting you finish. It's uh, yeah. the only people I have found now. Uh, now that you've succumbed, the only ones I know, <laughs> and I'm, I'm I, I say that with a smile on my face. The only ones that the people I know of who have yet not yet succumbed is the Bum Fuzzle blog. Have you ever seen that blog? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, so, so Pat and Allie, who write that blog, so to the best of my knowledge, they still haven't succumbed to actually uh, buying a cell phone. So maybe they're the last people in the world who are, are holdouts. I think, I think 50 bucks a year was kind of like my limit. <laughs> okay, I mean, in terms of the number of calls I make annual, it's probably I'm still paying like five bucks a call. But sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah, but I, I really try to like arrange my life sort of like the old-fashioned way and that we, we make an appointment and we meet at this place at this particular time and if people don't show up, then we have a backup plan rather than trying to arrange stuff on the fly. You and my dad, it's, we get along well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you had a question here about, do you ever see yourself going full-on Borsati? And I, had to, I didn't know what that was, so I had to go check that out. Do you want to make any comment on that? Explain say, what yes, that means. I, yes, I do see that. Uh, for those who don't know what he is or who he is, uh, he's kind of one of those neglected uh, personal finance. Not even pers- probably. So, so the thing about like personal finance and especially frugality is that it actually tends to come in waves. Uh, the last time, so we had like a, with with the way uh, the economy has gone over the past. Uh, over the past five years, uh, it has had like a huge resurgence of popularity, and a lot more people are taking these ideas seriously. But which is not really the case during boom times like the '90s and so on. The last time this happened was during the '70s, and which is which is kind of like where the foundation of your money or life got established. Uh, the other guy there was Ernest Kellenbeck, which is also an interesting guy uh, to look up. If you go. And it, it tends to happen in 30-year cycles, you know, for some reason, uh, some long cycle economic thing or whatever. Before that, the 70s, uh, you had the Great Depression and the time leading up to that. And uh, Ralph Basoli was one of the guys, and he was uh, strongly connected or inspiring this Helen and Scott Nearing 
uh, I don't who know. Who is that? Who who are Helen and Scott? Oh, Neary? those. Uh, yeah, so they were sort of like political philosopher radicals in the sense of rejecting the idea of capitalism and consumerism at that point. And Basoli was a little bit the same way. He was connected to the ad industry. And the 20s were kind of like the time where mass production really got underway. Uh, where, where for the first time in like history, things had gotten like really cheap and you could like get, you know, like all the sort of what we call modern amenities except computers were kind of coming into existence at that time. And one of the problems that businesses found that it used to be that products were built really well so that once you bought a product, you had it sort of for life and if it broke, you repaired it and so on. And industrialization, especially the way it was implemented, you know, as consumerism, the, the industries found that, that it, once you sold some a really good product to someone, they were not likely to buy from you again because they didn't need to. So, so uh, the, the the problem there was essentially like uh, one of the dis- uh, a distribution problem. How do we how do we distribute all these many products uh, products that that we create in our factories when people don't really seem to have any use for them? Well, the answer to that was like marketing and later planned obsolescence. And he kind of saw that, and he kind of rejected Posody. He kind of rejected that, and so he started this this kind of like home home self-reliance it wasn't a homestead it was more like what what kind of household skills can can we do uh, for ourselves so as not to get suckered in by this entire cycle of like uh, buying throwing out buying throwing out uh, one one thing that was kind of fascinating at the time he does he does he had his own like loom in his house and he wove the cloth for a suit like a like a business suit and got some tailor to to make it for him and he calculated how how much cheaper that was wow. than to go into Brooks Brothers for instance and and buy a new suit so that was a time when you still could do that so it was kind of like in that direction you know like learning learning basic skills that had been out, outsourced outsourced to like uh, industry and then insourcing them back in again wow uh, so I, I find I find that rather fascinating and I think kind of like the future direction is kind of going that way i mean there's no reason to overpay for something if you can like manufacture a better and cheaper version for yourself just by through a few skills it kind of plays into the whole thing right right yeah i'm very interested i've learned a lot from the whole i mean largely from permaculture from the permaculture design movement and once i understood the basics of permaculture design it really helped just guide my thinking in a lot of ways and like like we talked about earlier i was able to apply a lot of the a lot of the same principles to other areas of life and it makes all the sense in the world to me the the, the I, and i hope what do, i hope it doesn't happen now what 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 annoys me is when things become political it seems like they will quickly they'll quickly die and yeah. <laughs> and i wish that you know my hope is that i want to sell ideas based upon their ideas and leave you free to implement them if you want to uh, but sell the idea to me. Don't tell me that I've got to do it, or we're all going to be politically doomed. Uh, don't, right, yeah. <laughs> you know? Don't tell me. Don't tell me you you have to get rid of your SUV because there's this you know crazy global warming thing, and all of a sudden we're going to destroy the planet because of your SUV. Tell me the SUV is a stupid vehicle, and why don't we have this much more much much more intelligently designed vehicle <laughs> that meets your needs more fully, that is more efficient in every way, and let me choose. And I, I think most people. Will choose the more efficient version if they understand it and if they're if it's presented in an attractive way. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's also kind of like, yeah, it's a, it's a solution that focuses on you, kind of instead of we. But also, I mean, this is this is kind of like with a good thing about calling, having called the whole project Early Retirement Extreme, even though it's really like a prepare for the worst kind of blog uh, in case it happens. Uh, and that is you kind of like give give a positive outcome. You know, you can do this and it'll be great for you. Even if, and if bad things happen, well, you'll be better off. And if good things happen, you will be even better off. But it's, it's like good things you can do for you. Not, not, not something like you can't have this because we don't think you should have it because of that and so on. Right. Right. My favorite, my favorite, um, show on that and i know he interviewed you is jack spirico's show the survival podcast and to me he has the most rational approach to it and his entire philosophy is his show toward emergency preparedness and disaster preparedness is everything you do should make your life better if everything goes wrong or if nothing goes wrong so even if nothing ever goes wrong everything that you do should still make you know everything that you do should make your life better even if if nothing ever changes and so with the idea, the idea is that everything you do should make your life better, even if nothing goes wrong. Right. And so I would say the same thing about financial planning. I would say every change you make in your life should just simply make your life better. It's not that I recorded a video over the weekend for, for a FinCon video conference. And my, one of the things that I, that I use as an example is I said, don't look at your budget and say, where can I cut? Look at your budget and say, where can I optimize? And don't cut on anything that's important to you. Spend on the stuff that's important to you, but optimize it. And if you want to spend all your money traveling the world, do it. If you want to spend all your money on a BMW, do it. If you value your time and you don't want to spend your money on that stuff, do that. But don't cut. Optimize. It's the Kaizen approach, the Japanese philosophy. Right. Right. Constant and never-ending improvement. Right. Right. Any opinion on the current or future state of solar energy technology? Uh... It's not going to be enough, uh, but other than that, um, yeah, I mean, the, as, as, an, as a primary energy source, it's, it's not going to replace the fossil fuels. I mean, it has disadvantages, so, yeah. What about for individuals as far as financial planning? And here's, here's what I mean. Hmm. I, well, I, in, that, in, that, in, that, in that sense, as in, as in terms of putting panels on the roof, it's something I would hold off on since, like, the payback period is still pretty long. Right. Uh, as in, like, you can buy way more electricity. You can then, then, you know, the panels can supply you over the the, the payback period is is on the order of decades mm-hmm. until the price comes down substantially. And the problem with if if you buy panels now, you might find them in five years they only cost half the price. Right. So I mean, even you last sort of like make like a statement. Even in the last two years, they've dropped in price. And, yeah. and I'm working, like to me, what seems rational as far as implementing alternative energy solutions is it seems rational to first focus on efficiency. You, you're you're going to have a guaranteed savings from day one if you can improve efficiency. And only after you've solved as much of the efficiency yeah. fruit as possible do you go to producing the, producing the energy right. for yourself. Right, there's, there's a lot of slag in the system, you know. Instead of, like, buying a new furnace, you know, like, seal the windows first, you know, or change your light bulbs. Or don't, don't have your monster computer that eats 1,500 watts sitting there just to write emails, you know. If you're going to do that, use a laptop or something that uses 20 watts. It's 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 kind of like yeah that kind of thinking right. Uh, what what are your guilty pleasures or indulgences? Uh, 
I drink a lot. Of, I drink a lot of coffee. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> uh, other than that, no, I don't. I mean, not not in the traditional sense. I I don't think I really have any kind of like guilty pleasures as, as as such. I mean, some sometimes we actually do go out and get like a pizza from Little Caesars for five bucks, but I kind of justify it that well, that's kind of like our dinner budget anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> what area of self improvement are you focusing on right now? Um, well, this whole like enlightenment things thing we talked about, I mean, it would be kind of cool to reach a state if that's possible where, where everything in life in your life is just like experienced as flow. Like you're never bored. You always, always feel in the moment, you know, but every, every, I mean, you, you just sort of in the flow, but I, I don't know if that's even possible, but, uh. Yeah, that's. I mean, that thing, and then just kind of learning, learning new stuff. You know, I think how, the, to, how to fix a faucet, for instance. <laughs> I think one of the things that I'm saddest about is the loss of the love of learning in our society. Yeah. And I just, I don't know whether it's intentional or not. I can't figure it out. But it sure seems like the result, regardless of whether it was intentional or not, seems like the result of schooling is that most people come out and they don't enjoy learning. Right. And to me, the best. The, the the best enjoyment, and I see this, I mean, and again, you've gone all the way through school, so you were one of the few who escaped and still liked learning. That's why, you, I mean, you, that's why you did the PhD, I'm sure, because you were interested in it. I would it. say that, like, my uh, attitude kind of, like, uh, the, the reason I did not, okay, so so here's, here's some stories. So, like, uh, I interviewed for two PhD programs, and, and the first one, they asked me, so why do you want to do this? Yo, I, I want to I become a professor. Why do you want to do that? Well, so I can teach students who are, like, really interested in what I'm trying to teach them. And they just laughed at me. You know, like, that was terribly naive to believe that people who go to college are actually, with majoring in, say, physics, are actually interested in learning physics. And after being, like, a, a, a TA for, for four years as a, as a graduate student, it really kind of, like, dawned on me. I only, like, one in ten in a year actually pay attention to anything I do and say, the rest are here, uh, just here to get some, get some grades and get out of here. You know, they're not really interested in learning. And I kind of found, unfortunately, the same attitude in many, in many professors. You know, they only do their specialization. They're not really intellectuals in the traditional sense of the word. They have, like, they don't read books other than, like, the trade journals. And that, that kind of, like, just kind of, like, destroyed it for me. And that's why I didn't, uh, that's why I kind of left academia. If you were going to go back to university and start over, what would you major in? Uh, who's to say I would want to go back to a university? <laughs> <laughs> so explain. That, so explain that. What do you mean? Yeah. What would well, you do? I mean... I think that, well, I mean, I probably would go back to university. Uh, I think as I get older and more experienced, I mean, if you'd, ask, if you'd asked me that like uh, five years ago, I would have said like electrical engineering, software engineering, because then I would have considered that maybe these would offer much better career opportunities than, than physics does. And, you know, physics has surprisingly fewer career opportunities and it, very, I mean, people always think oh, I have a PhD in physics, so I must be making megabucks. You know, that's not really true. You know, you probably make a lot more. You know, with a uh, an undergraduate degree in like uh, I don't know, yeah, definitely accounting, uh, <laughs> maybe even history, as as you do as a researcher, a full time researcher in, in physics, in in a government or like a, a, an academic setting. Uh, so. 
if you ask me now though i think i'm becoming more getting back to the physics because i think it provides a somewhat unique way of thinking of always questioning whether what you actually understand about a given uh, concept or theory is is the correct one and you you're always in the mental mode of like this might not be true i mean there might be something which is more accurate and maybe i should think about how i can like figure that out i would say with probably i mean i think in in that sense we have to i mean i have to acknowledge that probably that mode of thinking was what made this entire development of the Yuri concepts possible um if the idea is simply to like retire early you know there are things like long haul trucking or like delivery even delivering pizzas might right. be a faster way right you know uh you can certainly be self-educated and multi-skilled and and make out really well i mean you got to consider that going going to the college is uh, going 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 to college is essentially just continuing the process of 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 like it's it's kind of like the finishing process process of how to be a good employee you know you can you can sit and you can take orders and you can follow simple instructions provided provided in writing and you can kind of like deliver on a schedule that's kind of like the the meta lesson of 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 college Right. It's not so much that it actually educates you in anything other than like a few technical terms. It's really that can this can this person take written instructions and deliver writing in return at and follow deadlines. You know, if they have a college degree, they you have a reasonable chance to believe that that is actually the case. And most right. jobs are kind of structured for that. It's right. not really can this person like uh, come up with a novel idea, bring together the right people, uh, and start a new company. They they don't teach that in college, you know. So I mean, I've actually struggled with the college, like my own perspective on college, because I have my degree. My degree was in international business because I was interested in, in business, but I went to a liberal arts school, and so I had a li- I have a liberal arts education. But I don't think I didn't get what a liberal arts education was when I was going through it, and I didn't value it as much as I value now. And the college, it's very popular now to despise college and to say, well, there's no point yeah. in it, just, just do an uncollege thing. And I'm totally in favor of people pursuing that path. But lately I've been doing a lot of thinking about why did college ever get wrapped up with the idea of earning more? And right. if I were going to do it over again, I think, I may still go to the same school that I went to, but I think one thing that I would do differently if I were going to do it over again is I don't think I would study something quote unquote practical. I don't think I would study business because I feel like I gained I've gained more business education from uh, from from doing it from entrepreneurship and then also from studying business focused books. So for example, the personal MBA curriculum. Right. That's been far more effective than this ridiculous textbook on finance that I had to read through in college. But if I were going to go back, I would do something like philosophy or liberal arts because mm-hmm. there's, there are not that many periods in life except for that beginning, those college years, where you would have the time and the opportunity to just spend time thinking and to spend well, time exploring. I mean, I, you do have every evening after work. Uh, <laughs> right. 
<laughs> that <laughs> is true. Kinda and like, that's kind of like the people stop learning because they think they don't have the time, but they do have the time if right. it's made a priority. Right. And it has to be a priority. And so like I would love I'd love to read a few books a week and right now I mean I'm trying to get one or two one to two in, but yeah. it's tough, you know, with I've got a young a young a young son. Right, right, yeah. And so I'm I'm prioritizing that time. Mm-hmm. I'm building yeah. a couple of businesses and so I'm prioritizing that time. And I just oh, think back, yeah. you know, the Thomas Jefferson, 15 to 17 hours. I'm like, that sounds like heaven to me if I could just have that opportunity again. But well, I mean, originally the college education was like intended to create better citizens. Mm-hmm. And we def- I, think, I think that happened. I forget, I forget the exact backstory, but that was, again, something that happened in the 1920s, that, that you essentially needed people to run this new industry that, that people were building and what, what they found. Uh, so go ahead. Okay, so like back in in in, in the nineteen twenties, the, the the problem with the uh, the new industry was in uh, retaining workers. That uh, primarily people at that time were still so skilled and sort of providing for their own needs without having to go out and shop and stuff. It actually used to be weird to go and buy gro- groceries. I mean, that's pretty hard to imagine today. But the problem the the factories had was that people would simply not show up the next day if they didn't need the money. Uh, you know this whole idea of like a standard schedule of, of of nine to five every day, five to six days a week. There was probably different hours back then, but the, the idea of a regular schedule was was somewhat alien to 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 employees. So colleges were essentially the entire school system was essentially to set up so to to provide people who were conditioned is probably the right word to sort of like sit down in rows, you know, doing work in front of a manager, that would be the teacher. So like from a very young age, people people then became sort of conditioned to factory conditions. And it's not really learning. It's more like, can you, can you sit still on your ass for, you know, like eight hours to 10 hours a day doing like stupid things or doing like text, small, solving small isolated problems for the guy up in front, you know, telling you to do things and then, who will then subsequently grade you depending on like how how well you have answered this simple, well defined right. closed closed end solution uh, problem. And so, if you have if you have people who have been doing that for 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 like ten, fifteen, and almost twenty years now, as educations have gotten longer and longer, then then you can you can easily hire these guys, you know, like to do the same thing in a cubicle for the next forty years. Right. But, I mean, on, on, at, at the same time, you know, saying that this is actually education or that people are being educated or learning anything by doing that, that's sort of like almost disingenuous because it totally takes the joy out of learning things. People, people just don't want to learn anything anymore. They just want to pass the test and get on with it and so they can move on to the next course. And then they kind of like load the answers into their brain. They dump them out, you know. Two weeks later, they've forgotten everything about it. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of like what education, unfortunately, has been reduced to. So. Yeah, it's you're 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 hitting on a subject we could go on for another two hours <laughs> talking about that because it's something I thought about. I thought about launching a podcast on education just simply as a way to guide my research. I don't. I'm not. Gonna, I'm not willing to make the time for it right now. Yeah. Yeah, but, you can invite me back, and I'll spill my bitterness for, for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just. It, it, it's almost like if you just look at it. No thinking, rational person would 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 
would design. I can't imagine how any thinking rational person would design this, the modern system the way it, the way it seems to function. But what I can't figure out, and what really bothers me, is I can't figure out: was it planned to fail, or like, or was it planned to have this result, or was it just a natural consequence? Was it a natural evolution over time? You know, I read John Taylor Gatto's book called "The Underground Underground History of American Education." If you haven't read it, it's fascinating. And when I was looking through it, I'm just saying, ah. Was this conspiracy or was this not? And I can't figure the answer out, and I can't find anyone who can convince me one way or the other. So I just I, I look at it rationally and say, yeah. regardless of the origin, this is what exists, and we got to do something different. Mm-hmm. Um, last question that I would have, unless you have anything else on that. Last, I'll, we'll, we'll wrap up the interview with this question. How many weapons am I proficient in? <laughs> not that one, but go ahead and answer it. How many weapons are you proficient in? I would say in? two. <laughs> <laughs> the right hand and the left hand? <laughs> no, no, that would, that, would, that would be the Japanese long sword and probably the Glock 17. <laughs> yeah, there we go. So do you still, uh, you live in Chicago though. You, how, you live in Chicago, right? Yeah. Uh, so how do you, you're not, you, know, you got the, they're a poor man. I would never, I, could, I couldn't live, I couldn't live in Chicago. I couldn't put up with those laws. Um, highest murder rate in the country and, uh, and the, yeah. the highest guns, gun restriction laws in the country. Anyway, yeah. that's, that's circumstantial. What did you get wrong when you wrote the book? And I, and I don't mean the title using the word retirement. What did you get wrong when you wrote the book? Um, I don't think I got anything wrong. <laughs> that's what that's what I was hoping uh, for. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like if I had to write it. I mean, I made some choices, right? Um, so one of one of the choices, I mean, was was to make it to talk about the strategy and how to think rather than give a plan. You know, and I think that was the right choice. But people have complained about this being the wrong choice. Still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay. Uh, the second choice was to sort of to write it in the academic style, which again, you know, some people really enjoyed the like, that it's sort of complete and everything. But unfortunately, I also have like probably like ten percent of 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 reviews complain that it's it's too hard to read, you know, and some some take it nicely and some some don't. Uh, ideally, I would want to be able to write at sort of the have you ever read the Book of Five Rings? No, I haven't. Sashi, this is like a famous sword instruction manual. Really? Okay, so in the Book of the Book of Five Rings was if 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 you read it without any any uh, any previous knowledge of like sword fighting or it's 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 actually much much broader about that. It's more about how to be a warrior in, in feudal Japanese society, and you can sort of read it as how to be a warrior in general, which is why people still read it, or how to sort of like think that way. Um, the, the the interesting part about that book is that it's written in a simple language, and yet it's 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 very deep. So that in the more you sort of understand. Every time you understand more, you get a different message out of rereading it. So you can keep keep cycling through it and learn more and more and more. And I would have dearly loved to have that in my book. Instead, my book is kind of like, well, as a you, you you probably need to have a sort of substantial reading comprehension to get through it. You know, people say it's sort of like college level. And and so if you're you're used to reading like standard nonfiction, which is sort of written at a sixth grade level, that's 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 sort of like an unfortunately. Lead to make, uh, 
some of it was somewhat intentional. Like there's, there's been some like commentary about the Bizarre equations in chapter seven. Um, mm-hmm. But those those equations are sort of freshman level annuity and mortgage calculations, you know, that you would have in, you know, like the first year of university and really should be somewhat un- something that if you do want to sort of like live off finances, it's something you should know. Right. So in, in some ways, it's it's kind of like the book is written in a way it's something like must be this tall to like play too tall, like kind of like they have in like uh, civilities and fun fairs and so on. You know, you must be this good to actually do it. And if you're not if, if, if you're not, say, tall enough, you're sort of like naturally precluded from knowing about what what you what you can do. It's sort of like a, a built in safety. Right. But what happens if you don't go into that, though? And that's a good example. And I see this all the time in the finance world. I was reading a I was reading an, a, a post on a financial blog, and the post the the question that was sent to the blogger was a a question about how much money he needed to get through a certain period of time, and and there was a period of time from the end of an uh, end of a certain employment through the beginning of a formal uh, defined benefit pension and i'm reading it and i'm saying and the author gave a uh, the blogger actually gave a really great answer but he took a completely different tact than i would have taken and my answer would have been here's a financial calculator present value n equals x interest rate equals x you know, pay, monthly payments or present value you have now. Let's discount this. Put in our inflation rate, and in two ca- and in two calculations, we can have your answer to the penny. But the thing is, is that if you don't understand, but what happens is that that, that obviously doesn't solve the problem because I could tell you you need two hundred and thirty-two thousand dollars based upon these these assumptions. What that leads you then is that leads you to say, but wait a second, why did I use X percent rate of return over X percent rate of inflation rate to yield my inflation-adjusted return rate? That's a problem. That's an assumption. And so when you challenge that assumption, then you back up and you say, my plan is vulnerable because of this. And so then as a planner, that puts you in the position where you say, how do we solve for that? Well, we look at our client and we say, does the client have a, a lifestyle that's going to be, would be significantly affected by inflation? Does the client's investments, do the, what is their expected, uh, expected return? And then we look and say, do we need another strategy? So maybe in that situation, if I were doing that for a client, the strategy would be, uh, you know, maybe this person should purchase an annuity, uh, uh, an annuity that can provide them a guaranteed payment for life. So, on the one hand, if you understand that, then you say, well, in this solution, because we have this financial problem of this financial formula, we're now going to purchase an annuity. But what happens in the personal finance space is everyone says, annuities are bad. Annuity, Clark Howard says annuities are a four-letter word, so therefore we can't use annuities, so this is a bad financial product. No one should ever buy an annuity. No, let alone not forgetting what an annuity cal- we don't understand what an annuity calculation is and because we don't understand a very simple present value inflation adjusted return monthly payment f- financial formula then we walk away from this solution which is a great solution in certain situations and we say annuities are bad i'm not going to buy one and to be fair to clark he specifies the type of annuity i don't want to be misfared just that's his word he says annuities are a four-letter word uh and so we walk past the solution, which is an annuity, not recognizing the mathematical construct as to why, in some situations, the annuity is the ideal solution. Yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of like, yeah, chapter seven is definitely like the biggest challenge of, of, say, the book, because it's sort of tried to, I tried to write it in a very general sense, like, so to, to make it possible for people to consider, like, 
what should you actually think about when you're investing? You know, what what are your concerns, and make them make them make it possible for them to to actually answer the right questions when they're considering something. Right. And of course, you get kind of like the the the. The, the negative feedback that well this guy doesn't know anything about investing because he doesn't provide a specific plan for me exactly. to follow and even worse then they go on to say well you should read these particular two books you know and then implement exactly the plan they see right read Bogohead's so, guide to investing and do what it says yeah and I'm just like oh no this guy is screwed you know because <laughs> if he does that you know I mean it's, it, it might it, it'll probably work fine now but right. you know and then in 10 years and 20 years, you know, those two books are completely invalid and, and people will like promote two other books, you know, after probably some kind of like massive problem developed. You know, I mean, I like a fun, something I, 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 I kind of, in, uh, so a massive problem developed. Yeah. And then, after, I mean, then the books will, will essentially change. Right. And so it's. I find it very hard. I mean, what I what I I, I wanted to sort of write, sort of like a, a, a advice that would be sort of like good for the ages. And I think, I think I think I did that. Mm-hmm. But on, unfortunately, that also means it has to be very general. Well, and so the, like the message people should take away from it is sort of like what they should think about and what they should consider, not not what they should specifically do. And I think I succeeded in that. But I mean. I, I think you did as well, and I, and and I'd be in, it'll be interesting to see how your book sells over time, to see if you have a steady sales and if those sales increase with time. And I'm facing this challenge with my podcast, even just trying to figure out how to. Okay, I mean the final. I would say the final thing that the book is missing was kind of like the what happened afterwards. But I mean, obviously, you can't really write about that. And those would be kind of considerations. What do you do after retirement? How do you structure your life? You know, and also the probably more like how does it fit into the rest of the world? Uh, I even had like one person uh, still there. Yep, I'm here. Okay, <laughs> need to sort of like verify a heartbeat or something. So if you can just like clap every five seconds. <laughs> I'll, I'll I try not to put in like the uh, the laughs and the agree with people so yeah, to keep yeah. the audio clean, but I'll go ahead and add those in. So, keep going. Um, so, um, I'll pick up. You'll, you'll come back to you. What I was, what I was going to say is that I really appreciate that about your book is that it has a perennial nature. And one of the things that I find interesting is I like to go back and read books from fifty years ago that. All right, let's try. <laughs> we'll try again. <laughs> All right. So, I guess, um, yeah, I guess that we'll, we'll consider that we'll we'll consider that question answered and kind of just yeah, wrap up. Otherwise, here. I'll just like keep adding more and more stuff. Exactly. To it. <laughs> keep adding, wrapping up. Anything else that you want to say before we go? Nope, I'm good. <laughs> where, anything you want to mention or plug as far as where people can find you? The book is Early Retirement Extreme. The website earlyretirementextreme.com. Anything else? Yeah. It should be pretty easy to find. Yeah. Uh, I'm still active on the forum. I'm not very active on the blog. Uh, yeah. So I just want to I just want to say thank you. And uh, if we get caught off, that'll be fine. Uh, but I just want to say thank you that I appreciate the book that you wrote and mm-hmm. kind of the point that I was trying to make uh, before we got cut off was that I liked I appreciate perennial content. 
I like to go back and I enjoy reading books that are about 50 or 100 or 250 years, years old. And I think there is a time and a place for content that is for today. But, but things, principles don't change. There have been people that have built financial independence over time with no, with no, with no, no matter what the, the path was there. And when you understand how they've done it, it makes it a lot simpler than just saying, well, here's what you should do. So your book may not be a bestseller on the New York Times because it's written at a third grade level to sell someone, insert investment strategy this and do this other thing. But you know, it's like half the people I ask about, and I'm not mad at index investing. In today's world, there's nothing wrong with it. But the only reason it works is because we have advanced, efficient markets. That's the, that's the theory it's built on. And we haven't always had that, and we may not always have that, and not all markets are efficient. So once you understand that, you can decide whether or not you want to employ it in your life based upon your goals and, and outcomes. So I appreciate you writing a, a perennial book and not talking about anything, any product, any specific strategy, but rather helping to give people the ideas. And it's only our culture that has dumbed things down to the point where people can't get through it or they can't, they can't read it or if they can't understand it because the book that you've written is far more valuable than the latest um, Mocha Factor book. I don't want to be cruel to the latte factor, so we call it the Mocha <laughs> Factor. Not that there's anything wrong with cutting back on lattes or mochas, but it's just the book you've written can stand the, stand the test of time. I, I hate that. That is, that is kind of like what I would consider my criteria for success. You know, that's kind of like, will it still be uh, interesting to read in 10 years or right. 50 years? And, and, and my second is kind of like my rule for seeing whether a book is good. You go to Amazon, you look at the new price, you look at the, uh, the used price. If right. those two are close together, then it's probably a pretty good book. If and the new price is twenty bucks, then the used price is like two cents. It's probably not a good book. Absolutely. Yeah. And go go like your money or your life. The biggest flaw in the book. It's a it's an amazingly great book, but the biggest flaw is he goes into investment strategy. And in today's world, retiring on government bonds is not possible. But in his time, it was. And I'm sure you know. I've never met him. Never talked to. Or he's de- I think he's dead now. But I never talked to the authors. Uh, but I'm sure that their strategies changed over time because he came from an investment background. Oh, so yeah, what he should have said is he should have said, this is working for me now, or he should have just left it out and written an article that was an addendum to the book because there's no way that he stayed retired on government. On, so on They actually on wrote a second book, like an update, which changed the investment strategy. Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so now when, when, when someone reads it, the forward to the book has to say this was appropriate in the 1970s. When you're right. dead and gone, your book will not have to say that. Uh, although by then we probably, I don't know, the cars will be 300 miles per gallon or 3,000 miles per gallon or fusion. So, Jacob, thank you for being with us today. I've really had fun uh, just kind of chatting with you, and, and I've, really had, I've really enjoyed it. And I wish you great success in all of your endeavors. And I mean my invitation. If you guys get down here to Florida if you, on your sailboat or in your tent, you're, you come on down. We've got a place yep. for you. Yeah, yeah, we'll do it too at some point. <laughs> <laughs> all right, sir. Have a lovely afternoon. All right. Thanks. Bye. And that's our show. Jacob, thank you for coming on the Radical Personal Finance podcast. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoyed listening to that, in, to that interview. I found it inspiring and, and thought-provoking, and I really enjoyed just being able to connect with someone who has thought deeply about these subjects and then to be able to connect a little bit deeper on the philosophy side of things. And hopefully you can start to see how, if you really understand philosophy and principles, you can apply them in every area of life. Now, ultimately, what you choose to do is going to be different than what I choose to do. So I may live a different lifestyle. I liked Jacob's quip of we live the same lifestyle, but he does his on far less. <laughs> I am not as skilled as he is with with his ability to live on, on less. But 
but we may live a different lifestyle. We may live in a different place. We may have different pursuits and different adventures, but we can take these ideas and these philosophies and we can integrate them into our own lives. And each of us can chart the course that is appropriate that will help us to build our version of financial independence, what it looks like. And we need a plan that will, that will fit our skills, our abilities, what we each of us individually actually has. So I hope that you've enjoyed the show and, um, and I'd like to bring you lots more of these. So if you know somebody, if you have any recommendations of people you'd like me to interview, feel free to let me know that. Uh, that's our show for today. Again, thank you for being with us. If this is your first time listening, uh, come back every day. We're here every weekday with in-depth content like this, in-depth interviews, in-depth financial planning uh, teaching on everything from the very, very technical to the philosophical. We do a lot of commentary, and, and basically what I'm trying to do here every day is create the type of financial planning podcast or radio show that I would always have enjoyed listening to that wasn't the same old, same old humdrum every day, you know, put money in an IRA and, and get a will type of financial talk show that, that I've heard in so many places. So I'm trying to create the type of show that I would have enjoyed listening to, and if this is, if this is the kind of thing that you like, come back every day. Would be thrilled. Uh, for, uh, thank you for those of you who've been leaving reviews in iTunes. Would be thrilled if you would take a moment and leave us a quick review. Pull out your phone. You can do it right on your phone. If you need any help with that, go to RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash review. And all of the show notes for today's show are at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash 25 slash 25. Let me know what you thought of the interviews. Leave a comment on the blog. Shoot me an email, Joshua at RadicalPersonalFinance.com or on Twitter at RadicalPF. We're on Twitter at RadicalPF. And if you like the show, I would appreciate it. Share some love and uh, share it with others so that others can benefit. Thanks for being here. Have an awesome Tuesday. out y'all come back tomorrow